0: We're back and we're at episode 70 of They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Lee Leftovers to Be Russell. I'm joined by my intrepid co host, Daniel Made of Chemicals Harper. As are Yeah, and we have a special guest host, a very special guest host today, Kit. How can he be saved from the eternal grave power? How are you guys <laughs> doing?
2: I, doing well. Doing well. I'm really excited to be doing this. It's always interesting to be sober while we start recording these podcasts because it so rarely happens. But it is nine o'clock in the morning where I am. Yeah. That doesn't say I will still be sober at the end of this podcast. But you know, I'm, I'm sober now, so.
0: <laughs> See how it goes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, thanks very much for joining us, uh, Kit. It's an honor to have you on the show. Oh, it's great to be here. I was listening
3: to the episodes you guys did on the Dawn of the Dead and the Dawn of the Dead remake, both movies I'm I'm a big fan of and I really
0: enjoyed it. So, yeah, I'm happy to be part of the conversation. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. And uh, Ken is the one who just suggested the movies that we're going to be doing today. But before we get to that, I do have some comments to go through, just three quick comments. First from our uh, mutual friend, Jack Graham. He said he enjoyed listening to the sex comedy series that we just got done doing, listening to me talk about the various redheads I fancy, doing impersonations of Vinnie Jones, etc. He said he didn't watch any of the films, so complete lack of context allowed the discussions to assume the random and thus oddly suggestive tone of surrealist poetry. Good job, guys.
2: Nah, well. I don't even know what you would get out of listening to us talk about sex comedies without having seen the films, at least vaguely. <laughs> I know that is kind of why we do uh, plot summaries now, so that people don't have to watch. But I was listening to some of those episodes. Like, I don't know what you'd get out of our conversation about Eurotrip if you'd never seen Eurotrip. But uh, I'm really glad Jack enjoyed it. Yeah, I have to so.
3: say, based on Jack's review, i am now tempted to go and do exactly that because <laughs> I'm not particularly interested in sex comedies, but it sounds like it is a
0: fun conversation, so <laughs> maybe I'll go and check them out too. You,
2: you, the you term ginger do... rapist comes up fairly
0: regularly, so you know. <laughs> yeah. And you you, you could do it without watching Summer Job. Just a little hint there, or <laughs> okay. or Busty Cops, if you want to go back further. Yeah, if the... you want
2: to go back to the original uh, sex comedy series, there are a few of them that we there are some that we'd highly recommend you watch, and then there are some that no
0: one should ever watch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. You know, there's one or two that you should watch on fast forward so, you know. we, have our com- we have a comment from our friend Stuart Balk from the Midnight Movie Cowboys he says that we should be taking a shot every time Daniel says like in, in this podcast so. well like I just don't really like know exactly
2: how like to take that Stuart I mean I'm <laughs> just wondering if you're like drinking something right
0: now or if like I should just keep doing this for the entire like episode no, you really shouldn't be because I don't want <laughs> to end all those out. So, and Stuart's an Australian, so he's drinking anyway. He doesn't need to take a shot every time you say like. That's fair. Is, I really no, Now, you, now, I, now I need to put the word, word like into my uh, plot summaries more often.
2: So you know, <laughs> give him a, a
0: And finally, one comment from uh, CB Fall. He's keeping them coming on the uh, Google Plus side of things. As far as the Meatballs uh, <laughs> podcast we did, what an odd movie it is. Terrific podcast. Lots of exclamation points afterwards. So, and the quality of an internet comment is measured by the number of exclamation points. It you is. Know, the more exclamation points, the better the comment, really. You know. So. And and I love I love how the entire Meatballs franchise, basically became one movie. To him <laughs> Something
2: so. tells me he's not actually listening to the podcast.
0: <laughs> I I don't know about that. I don't. Know. But uh, now we can move on to what we've watched as of late. If either of you guys have anything you want to mention. I don't have anything, so I'll open the floor to uh, either of you gentlemen.
3: Yeah, I just, I'm just trying to think. I just watched... Um, oh, well, and I think this is connected to you guys. I've started rewatching Homicide Life on the Streets. Um, ah. Is that right? Are you guys going to be podcasting on that in the near future? Is that one of your future plans? When, whenever we can get it up and running, which is sure, really sure. Daniels yeah. being a lazy asshole and just hasn't gotten... <laughs> <that>. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, I just because um, we just I just bought uh, just got a multi-region DVD player for my room. I needed it to watch *Parents* because I bought that. That's not actually available on UK DVD; it's only a US DVD release. But it meant I could come in the garage and find all my old US region one DVDs that I've got to kick around, and, and *Homicide* season one and two. That box set was uh, was one of them. So I've just started watching that again with the missus and uh, I'd, I'd forgotten just how good that was. It's been a real pleasure. It's so well written, and the actors are just—it's a great cast. You know, they play well off each other. Just watch the episode three, which is a bottle episode where they're they're in the they're in the barn all night during the hottest night of the year, and the air conditioning's been turned off. It's just a superb. Superb forty-five minutes of television. Just it stands up so well, uh, even today. Uh, as far as movies, I watched some really kind of disappointing supernatural thriller thing with um, great cast. Ed Robert De Niro, uh, Sigourney Weaver, and Cillian Murphy. It was called Red Lights. Oh, um, I heard of that. No. Yeah. I just, uh, that was a disappointment, I have to say, because <laughs> I'm a big fan of all three of those actors, and I, I had high hopes, but it, it just didn't didn't really work for me at all. It was, it was kind of meandering, and the, the big plot twist at the end, I'm not sure it actually made any sense. It's some nice performances. De Niro in particular was actually very good in it, but uh,
0: not, a, not a great movie, I'm afraid. But that's, yeah,
3: anyway, that's been me.
0: for the week. Yeah. Well, that, And that's that's something notable at this point, to uh, see De Niro, De Niro actually give a great performance, so just slumming it in some <laughs> shitty comedy somewhere, you know?
3: Yeah, actually, the, I mean, I'd I'd say I'd say the performances were not the weakness in the film. All three. I mean, Sigourney Weaver's just. I think she's awesome. I could watch her in pretty mm-hmm. much anything, and she's she's very very good in this. Because in this one, she's like a scientist who. I mean, her job is she investigates alleged paranormal you know psychics and and people like that and she debunks them that's kind of what she does she's an academic but that's that's kind of her role and her kind of her motivation for that and the the way that that's played and the way her character she has an amazing scene with Cillian Murphy where she explains why she's got this issue particularly with De Niro who's this famous psychic who retired 30 years ago and is coming out of retirement Her, her acting in that scene was just incredible just you know absolutely amazing and you know, kind of silly looking, you could see him kind of like, oh shit, I better stay on top of my game here, because like, i mean, like, I'm, I'm sitting here with a world class actor, I better get my shit together, And it, it just it was great, it was a great piece of drama yeah, overall, and yeah, and De Niro was, was really good in it, really kind of nice combination of, you know, uh, sinister and charismatic, and yeah, but it just, unfortunately, for me anyway, the story just didn't hang, I think it, it may have died in the edit, they may have messed up oh, the direction, I'm not quite sure, they stomped all over the ending, definitely, which is a shame, but anyway,
2: Mm. Kid, are you saying that um Cillian Murphy might not have had to work quite so hard to live up to the acting talents
3: of Christian Bale? Is, is that <laughs> the suggestion you're making? I don't I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so on Peaky so I love much. Anyway, sorry, continue.
2: Yeah, no, um, I haven't really watched anything uh, specifically movie-wise, but I did, um, I've been kind of sporadically watching a little bit of Star Trek The Next Generation just because uh, it's on Netflix and I grew up with it and uh, I still kind of love it. It's my comfort watch show. And I have officially reached the midpoint of Season 3, which is the point at which the show becomes fucking amazing. I watched Yesterday's Enterprise the other day, um, and I didn't realize it was coming up. It's just suddenly, it's like, holy fuck, it's Yesterday's Enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, it, Possibly I mean, I wouldn't say the greatest episode of the of the next generation, but pretty close, and then the offspring is right after that, which is you know another like really really interesting one so um that was just kind of a pleasant afternoon. I whiled away with um a little bit of beer and uh, watching some old TV that I loved as a child so
0: nice nice and now I'm gonna throw a little monkey wrench into this because i I'm, I'm figuring this is gonna be a new tradition whenever we have an a guest on here, Daniel. Um, we're going to go with the uh, little sort of uh, slant on the desert island question that we've been uh, bouncing back and forth the last couple episodes. Sure. And I'm going to put Kit on the spot here and I'm going to say to him, sir, you are on a desert island and you can only pick one actor in his filmography, his or her filmography I should say, and that's the only person you can watch for the rest of your life. Who would it be? Ah! Uh.
3: That's an evil question. Mm. That's... um, Who would it be? Selecting by actor, filmography. Okay, so the problem with that is my favourite movie, the movie I would have to have with me on the desert island, I would have to have Robocop because it's the greatest movie ever made. And I just... (laughs) I can watch it every day of the week and twice on Sundays and it will always be a joy. So it will have to be one of the actors at Robocop. So then it becomes about, do I want Carrie as well, in which case I select Nancy Allen, or do I want Dead Poets, in which case I want Kirkwood Smith, or which would I rather have on a Desert Island? I think if I had Dead Poets, as much as I adore that film, I think if I had Dead Poets and Robocop, I'd end up killing myself, so I think it would have to be Carrie, so it'd have to be Nancy Allen.
2: Nice. There you go. That's a, that's a very nicely argued piece, you know. <laughs> yeah.
3: It's it's so it'd be I, Nancy I, Allen, I'd get Robocop, I get Carrie, and I don't know what else I get. I don't even know what else she's been in, but I don't care, they'd be
0: bonuses, but I'd have I'd have Carrie and I'd have I'd have Robocop. Yeah. That'd be me sort. I'm trying to I'm trying to think now like what, what Nancy Allen what else she's in. <laughs> <laughs> My
3: problem. Get of, I'd also look Robocop too, which but you know, I guess I'd need something to hang up the decoration or something.
2: <laughs> I always I have the problem of getting Nancy Allen and Nancy Travis confused in terms of <laughs> I mean,
3: was in which you know sort of thing.
2: So uh, you know that's kind of the only the only issue that I have. But um yeah I like that choice. I love that argument that like I need these two movies in my life, and so I'll just pick this actor who's in both, and then you know move on. But whatever else <laughs> I get as a bonus, cause yeah no, I, <laughs> I, I, I like that argument. I was yeah. actually thinking about this this week, Lee, and I was thinking Bob Balaban might be a reasonable choice for this because he's got uh, quite a few, quite a bit of stuff from like the '90s. He's always been good, and you get a nice variety of stuff. And uh, that's a name we're going to come back across here uh, shortly. Mm-hmm. So, I, um, but I did, I did kind of run across it and go, "Oh, that would actually wouldn't be a terrible choice for um, you know an actor to to choose for this desert island." I think,
0: I think, I think Bob Balaban even has crossover to another Ken Russell film. He does. He altered does. States, He's in alternate states. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't even. I didn't even. Uh, when I was uh, thinking to spring this question on Kit, I wasn't even considering the fact that his favorite movie of all time is RoboCop, and that's what he'd have to pick from and limit himself to. So I, I wasn't intentionally trying to be that sadistic in my in my asking. But... <laughs> no, but
2: it works. Okay, well. okay, I mean, Kit. It, it okay, Kit. Back. What if you get RoboCop plus? An actress'
0: filmography.
3: Ah, uh, well, that's tougher. I was thinking about that. I mean, you know, then you start to ask the question. I mean, for sheer volume, you'd want to. I mean, like Nick Cage is an obvious choice because he was just in every single movie <laughs> Oh like twenty You up with a lot of shit, but you'd get The Rock, you'd get Conair, you get you know, you get some good action. You get Face Off, which is fan bloody tastic. I mean, that's always that's quality entertainment. Face Off, but you do up... John film. I mean, just... <laughs> yeah, it's a glorious movie. I mean, it's just. Oh, we haven't done a speedboat chase yet. I mean, it's so good.
2: Which I say because it was the first John Woo film I ever saw. So clearly. Yeah, me too. Oh,
0: what a way to, what a way to soil your oppression of John Woo. damn. That, I that, still was, a gateway, that, that was a
1: gateway drug.
0: No, I love it. I love Face Off. I have different Face Off. I think it's super. But
3: so, I mean, if you were just by sheer tonnage of DVDs, that would be the, because you could build a raft out of them and then get off the island. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you get raising Arizona, and you get you get all those great. Yeah, stuff, you, you do. Yeah, so, I mean, he
3: has the, well, wild at heart, man. I fucking love
0: that. Film. So you get so, uh, Matt, Matt Dickman, yeah, Red Rock, Red Rock West, which yep. yeah. yeah,
3: the the crappy version of the Wicker Man. I mean, there's a lot. Yeah. you get you get Peggy Sue got married. Yeah, mm-hmm. if you were gonna, or if you're gonna do it by weight though, the other the other serious contender. Actually, and this would be a serious contender for me. Would be Christopher Lee. Yeah. For the same reason, you get about 150 movies if you got Christopher Lee, and some of them, I mean, most of them are shit, but some of them are absolutely fucking brilliant. I mean, the original, the Hammer Dracula's, the Frankenstein, actually, yeah, I think Christopher Lee's probably the one. That's probably my serious pick, because he's done so much. And you get, you know, you get the Rings movies, you get the Hobbits as well, I mean, you're right. you, get you get the, Hobbits, shitty, you get the uh, Rings. You get the shitty Star Wars films.
0: Yeah, okay, you get the Shade Star Wars films. Well, maybe Peter George Pusha
2: Lucas will Google. go back and edit him into the originals. And then he's, no,
0: he he's, <laughs> get those yeah. he's not allowed to do that anymore. He, he can't. Anymore.
2: Not anymore. No, yeah. There's, there's gonna be George, do it, George Lucas takes it back in 2040 and <laughs> just no. to edit Christopher Lee into every single film. Just for forget no. to be able to watch the original Star Wars films again.
0: You see, uh, Dis- Disney Disney did a good thing by buying that up because it's uh, almost like it's almost yeah. like uh, project. For protective child custody kind of thing where you're know, I, I tell you what it reminds me of seriously it's exactly the
3: same thing that happened with Doctor Who where like now what's happened is the fans have inherited the franchise that's what's happened that's not the perfect solution because fans can be problematic fan fiction is not the same as real fiction there's problems with it but my god it's better than letting Lucas continue to piss all over things I mean almost anything would be better than that and the truth is that they'll you know for the foreseeable future the people the most in love with Star Wars that have the best storytelling talent are the ones who will be paid to make new Star Wars movies. That doesn't guarantee good Star Wars movies, but it gives us way better odds than
0: we had with Lucas and the help. So, no, I agree with you. It gives you a better chance. I mean... Definitely. JJ Abrams basically just remade Star Wars in this latest one and it's like I want to set everything right <laughs> again yeah. yeah no I think he did agree I, I really
3: like The Force Awakens I mean it bummed me out I was really saddened when I came out the first time I was like because <laughs> I, love, I love well like everyone else I love harm and it was just kind of like it was
0: really sad it was a bummer but it was a
3: good bummer you know what I mean like it, was
0: a, it got you yeah, yeah. And so I, I also saw this theory um, that was posed on the internet that Harrison Ford is now on this little push to re- revise all of his classic roles and die in the film series. So <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so he so he'll well, he'll he'll come back for like a um, Jack Ryan series and, and die in in one of those films, like sequel to Patriot yeah, Games yeah. or whatever. He'll he'll die right. in Indiana Jones. He'll die in maybe maybe they'll have a sequel to the Fugitive. Like, Blade yeah. Runner, yeah. so <laughs> oh, yeah.
2: fugitive. We're gonna get, we're gonna get the the next generation where he's after the that one-legged so man. Good. Well, you know, because it's interesting. Like <laughs> Harrison Ford will, will, uh, will be his No Country for Old Men character. You know, he'll be the <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and it'll be like this deeply introspective, philosophical, you know, Cormac McCarthy style, you know, examination of fugitive hunting. You know.
0: Yeah, uh,
3: yeah uh, Air, but, Air Force 2 regarding Henry 2. Is it, it's going to just <laughs> run. Air Force
2: 2. Another witness. Air
3: Force
2: Another Air witness.
0: There you go. Or Air Force 2 electric boogaloo would probably be the retitling. <laughs> there it is. There it is.
2: There it is. The second conversation.
0: Is, the second yeah, conversation. Yeah, Oh, jeez. I think the... <laughs> Bring Gene Hackman out of retirement, my God! That would be fun. Well, he's on a quest, isn't he? Because like he he was the highest grossing
3: film actor in Hollywood of all time for a long time. And Samuel L. Jackson finally knocked him off the podium with the uh, I think The Incredibles. The voice work he did for The Incredibles is what pushed Samuel L. Jackson over the top. So I think he could. He could be trying to do it. He's he's got another maybe he's got another five or ten years acting left in him to try and get the crown back.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> well, He sure really... dies is the way to go. <laughs> He he certainly looked more animated in the new Star Wars than he has in about 15 years or more. Oh,
3: my God. He
0: was amazing in that film, I thought. Absolutely. What a performance.
3: And the thing was, the first time I watched it, I I genuinely, because I didn't know what was going to happen, because I'm so stupid when it comes to story that I didn't figure out he'd become Obi-Wan, I was watching it going like, why is he so old suddenly? Why is he so sad? Like, you know, I'm remembering Indy and thinking Crystal Skull. Whatever was wrong with Crystal Skull, and frankly, a lot was wrong with Crystal Skull. There was nothing wrong with him you know Ford's performance and that was great he was in so it's like why is he so and then of course at a
0: certain point in the story you kind of go oh you know, it was just an amazing performance I thought anyway yeah and he's still wearing the same old leather jacket he was wearing mm. <laughs> Midlife crisis man that's well yeah
4: did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds ah Nick Movies need only three things.
5: Badasses. You tell me who you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons? And body counts. Out. The mathematics
4: of murder and menace. The BB and BC Podcast is your source for exploitation film discussion of B movies. You can find the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio by searching for BB and BC Podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly from the show's website located at badasses boobs and Let's go to work.
5: Vitus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? An obscure body in the SK system, Your Majesty. The inhabitants refer to it as the planet
1: Earth. How peaceful it looks.
5: Most effective, Your Majesty. Will you destroy this Earth? Destroy it utterly. Send Rick and Banny in
4: Wool Rocket Ajax. So, just destroy it? That's what Ming said.
2: Don't you ever listen? Well, there's no arguing with Ming. Hail Hail Ming.
0: Ming. Wait! You see those transmissions on the Visua screen? Crow? Nightmare on Elm Street? Chud
4: too? Black Belt Jones? (laughs) Nightbreed? What's a critter? I've seen those things. Flash? Flash?
0: I guess we could wait a while before the destruction. Yeah, and watch the movies. And talk about them. The Helming Power Hour. Disobedience to Ming. For now.
2: You can find us at Legion Podcast. You can find us on Facebook. iTunes. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. At WW. You know what? Just Google it for yourself.
4: Just Google it, you bestiges. Helming. Breaking Two? Electric Boogaloo? Samurai Cop? Army of Darkness? Flash Dance? <laughs> <laughs> we might destroy the planet if it's Flash Dance. <laughs>
3: Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast under the stairs? I'm the host Duncan McLeish, and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic, old school horror favourites, as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say, more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough, we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror, where our horror novice, the Baz, tackles horror in all shapes and forms to see who will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on Stitcher and iTunes. The podcast Under the Stairs is a
5: proud member of Legion Podcast Network. This is Duncan McLeish from Under the Stairs,
0: signing off. All right. Uh, I guess we can move on now and we can start with our films here and we're going to start with Tommy from 1975 In 1968,
5: a revolutionary piece of entertainment was written and played for the first time It was the creation of an extraordinary British composer Peter Townsend It was performed by an incredible music group called The Who It was titled Tommy The unusual theme of the story immediately captured the imagination of an entire generation. Tommy became a classic, enjoyed by countless millions and performed by artists all over the world. Now, director Ken Russell with producer Robert Stigwood have embarked on what seemed to many an impossible goal, to make a movie of Tommy. They assembled some of the most important names in the international motion picture and music worlds. Columbia Pictures and Robert Stigwood are proud to announce Tommy, the movie. Tommy, the movie, your senses will never be the same.
0: The film directed by Ken Russell, probably best known for other films like The Devils, Altered States, and Lair of the White Worm, which I think are all three films we're going to be covering at some damn point on this podcast. Maybe for, maybe for October, actually. I think they all kind of fit, so... We might do that. Written by The Who, Ken Russell, and Pete Townsend. Uh, it's based on his rock opera, of course. Uh, John Entwistle and Keith Moon have uh, additional material credits as well for this. Starring Oliver Reed. The great Oliver Reed as Frank. The lush is Ann-Margaret as Nora. Robert Roger Daltrey as Tommy. Elton John as the pinball wizard. Eric Clapton as the preacher. John Entwistle as himself. Keith Moon is Uncle Ernie. Oh Uncle Ernie, isn't he a treat? Paul Nichols is cousin Kevin. Jack Nicholson as the specialist. Robert Powell as Captain Walker. Pete Townsend as himself. Tina Turner as the acid queen, and a favorite of mine, Arthur Brown, as the priest. And we'll send it over to you for the synopsis there, Daniel. Good luck with this one.
2: I'd just like to warn everyone who might have gotten used to these slightly abbreviated plot summaries in the sex comedy series, I am back on point now. So, um, <laughs> settle in. <laughs> Tommy is the life story of our eponymous hero, beginning before his conception by a World War II flyboy and the gorgeous Anne Margaret, and ending as a disgraced New Age rock star Jesus who finds his own enlightenment with a capital E in nature, all told through the genre of rock opera. Tommy's father seemingly dies in combat before his birth, and five years or so later, his mother meets the man who would become her new husband, and Tommy's stepfather, at a holiday camp. Sometime early in their courtship, Tommy's father returns to his home horribly scarred, and in what is apparently an accidental moment brought on by fear of an intruder, Tommy's stepfather kills the other man with a lamp. Tommy witnesses the incident, which brings on a psychological state of deafness, dumbness, and blindness that will last him until his adulthood. Tommy, played as an adult by Roger Daltrey, suffers for much of his life of abuse from family members and other babysitters, as well as well-meaning but largely ineffective treatments for his condition that include faith healing by a Marilyn monroe worshiping cult and an acid queen-slash-prostitute who magically transforms into an Iron Maiden-slash-medical device. Eventually, following a version of himself into a junkyard, Tommy discovers the broken-down pit-ball machine and with it his own supernatural ability to play the machines through his enhanced sense of touch, I suppose. The movie isn't exactly clear on the matter. Tommy becomes a pinball superstar, which brings great wealth to his parents, which is received with a sense of satisfaction by his murderous stepfather, but with enormous anxiety by a guilt-ridden mother. That despondency over her newfound wealth at the hands of her disabled son leads to what is perhaps the single greatest example of splashing, first by baked beans, then by melted chocolate, available in any major motion picture anywhere. After a medical intervention by a nameless specialist reveals that Tommy's condition is psychosomatic, not physical, the parents notice that Tommy seems to be able to see his own reflection in a mirror, which he stares at incessantly. Driven somewhat mad by the knowledge, Tommy's mother smashes the mirror one day, leading to a psychological break which restores her son's faculties. Newly restored, Tommy becomes a religious figure in his own right, attracting hundreds if not thousands of followers, due in part because of Tommy's willingness to act as a sort of hang-gliding superhero defending the rights of counterculture and working-class heroes everywhere. All comes to naught, however, as eventually Tommy's instructions to his followers to artificially deafen, blind and mute themselves and play pinball in order to achieve the enlightenment that he has found cause them to rebel against him and smash all his pinball machines, in the process murdering both his parents. Tommy ends the film on a religious search of nature by himself, and he ends the film triumphant in his discovery of his true self, secure that even if he must do it alone, he can indeed scale the mountain of his own ego, or something like that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well done. Bravo. Sir. Bravo. Yeah. And uh, I, would li- I would just
2: like to say I really appreciated the opportunity to use the word sploshing in a plot summary.
0: So you yeah. Know. <laughs> very, very very good, very good. And since you are our guest, Kit, we will uh, go to you for your first impressions and you can feel free to uh, prattle on as much as you as you want. No no restrictions here okay. <laughs> Blimey, okay,
3: strap in. So, okay, so Tommy, me, um, I mean, the reason I picked these two movies is they're both movies I saw at a young age, too young, really. And although I'd forgotten, it's interesting that I've discovered on rewatching they both have themes of childhood kind of subjugation by terrifying adult forces. That's actually a common theme in, in both movies. But to start with Tommy. I first saw Tommy, or I first attempted to watch Tommy at the age of maybe six or seven years old. It was on broadcast television in the UK. I was staying at my grandma's house. My mum was there. We were channel hopping, and she said, Oh, The Who. I like The Who. You'll like The Who. Let's watch this. No idea what it was about. As I say, I was about six or seven. I I, I lasted till about cousin Kevin, (laughs) at which point I demanded that my mother turn it over, because it was just terrifying. It was just an unbelievably disturbing Piece of work. It disturbed me so badly that I was unable to rewatch it as a teenager. I tried again at the age of seventeen or eighteen to watch it. That time I made it as far as Uncle Ernie, and then I saw Uncle Ernie pulling on the big rubber gloves. <laughs> I was like, nope, nope, big glass of nope, big pint of nope, big uh, mountain of nope ness. I'm just burying this in the ocean of nope and getting on with my life. I didn't actually manage to get through Tommy until my late twenties, when I finally. And I bought it on DVD, and it sat on my shelf staring at me, and I couldn't bring myself to watch it and I eventually got through it. So why did I why on earth did I want to talk about Tommy? I think because of that, because for me, rewatching it now It's still, hands down, I think, one of the most disturbing pieces of cinema I've ever seen. Now, I'm not a massive horror fan, but I've seen most of the, certainly most of the 80s horror canon I've seen, and I've seen some of the 70s exploitation stuff. I mean, I've seen Last House on the Left, The Hills, have Eyes, stuff like the original Cravens. They're disturbing movies, no doubt, but for my money, Tommy is right up there. I think Tommy's like, almost like a quintessential horror movie, and the fact that it's, Ken Russell and the fact that it's 75 and the fact that it's a rock opera just distracts people from the fact that at its heart this is an absolutely terrifying horror movie. This is a horror story about, and it's about child abuse which is about the scariest thing most of us can actually imagine. It's about the the psychological damage that's inflicted uh, on this kid and the power of parents to fuck a kid up. Because at the point that Tommy goes deaf, dumb, and blind, the reason that happens is because, he yes, he witnesses his father being murdered by a stepdad. Okay, well, so far, that's Shakespeare. In that's, fact, that's the Greeks. That's a classic story. But then his parents, they, they scream in his face. You didn't see it. You didn't hear it. You won't say anything. And that's the moment that he struck deaf, dumb, and blind. I think the concept of a deaf, dumb, and blind protagonist is inherently A, terrifying, and B, really interesting. It's very rarely done because it's so challenging. I think it takes a genius director like Ken Russell to bring that to life and to create images and sounds that give you a sense of what it must feel like to be completely isolated. I think the stuff where you see inside Tony's imagination, particularly when he's a kid at the fun fair and later when the acid queen shoots him full of acid and he starts hallucinating, I mean, the notion of a deaf, dumb and blind kid hallucinating is inherently genius. But the way it's displayed is just so quintessentially bizarre and uh, terrifying that it I mean that left a permanent impression on me and I had nightmares for months and I still occasionally have Tommy nightmares it will still get back to me on the last pre-watch I had I had a couple of Tommy nightmares it's normally the acid queen as well occasionally uh, yeah Uncle Ernie Christ um <laughs> Fundamentally, it's about a bullied child as well. The abuse he suffers from is also bullying. I mean, cousin Kevin is a bully. the The way the Acid Queen treats him is really bullying. It's it's an adult, uh, you know, it's it's an adult abuse of a child. But the other thing about the movie is it just it has so many layers. So as I came back to it as an adult, I discovered things I hadn't seen before because I was too busy being freaked out by the horrific abuse stuff. So like when he sees the, when he has the experience with the Acid Queen, he sees himself in the mirror in a particular color. And after he sees, after he has the experience with Cousin Kevin, there's a second colour version of him. Uncle Ernie provides the third. They then combine into a, a real image. That's the image that he follows out of the mirror into the chunk of. That's when his salvation begins and he finds the pimple machine. Now, the symbolism of that is uh, obviously... Teen Turner represents drugs, the acid queen. Cousin Kevin is quoted as a rocker. He's dressed as a rocker. Now, this is back when the mods and the rockers were beating the shit out of each other, and obviously the Who are a mod band, so the Rockers were the bad guys. So he represents rock and roll. Mm -hmm. And then the third scene, of course, Uncle Ernie is sex. So they're, you know, perversion. So so there's the three demons of rock sex, drugs and rock and roll, the three great demons of the sixties. They combine and also provide the path to salvation. Now, that's the thing that keeps getting repeated throughout. Tommy's suffering is indivisible from his path to salvation, which is inherently a difficult but be an interesting concept, and one that actually I don't really think has been done a great deal. Maybe it takes something as weird as this movie (laughs) to do that. Anyway, so, yeah, I, I picked Tommy just because it's a movie that, A, it's one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen. Uh, but also, I just felt like there's a certain kind of B movie quality to it because it's it's just very outside of the mainstream. I think that's Ken Russell too, largely, or the combination of Ken Russell and Pete Towns. I think they made something incredible that is deeply artistic, but is also you know incredibly disturbing.
0: Yeah, and be, and before I get your thoughts, Dan, I'll, I'll just uh, bring up two points. Uh I felt were interesting that you mentioned there. Um, yeah, I, I think one of the big reasons that this film is so kind of horrific in a lot of ways is that it's Ken Russell's influence. Even though this is kind of toned down from what Ken Russell was known for doing, he still gets in... Like, I'm I'm actually... I was not familiar with this film. Uh, well, like, I, I knew this, it existed, but I had never watched it before until uh, you suggested it for the podcast. So going into it, I was only aware of the actual Who album, Tommy. i would heard that a couple times. The story was somewhat familiar to me, but it is changed here to certain degrees in the actual film. A lot of the really horrific stuff that's just hinted at in the actual album is like really brought to light by Ken Russell here. Like He basically throws it right in your face. The molestations, the abuse, things like that. So he he really brings that stuff out. It's interesting you mentioned the use of colors. That's sort of like a big motif for Ken Russell. He he's he's very big on having like very, very hard colors like appearing in certain scenes to project certain ideas, and often you'll see them combine in some of his films. So, uh, yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. Daniel, I'll throw over to you what, what your sort of initial thoughts are on this one.
2: My feeling is that this was my first time watching it. Uh, I mean, I'd seen like maybe bits and pieces of it at some point, my teens or whatever, but I had no functional memory of it. I don't really have any connection to The Who beyond, you know, a couple of their singles that I just like, you know, but I don't have any mm-hmm. connection to that kind of genre of music. And so, a lot of times when I uh, sit down to watch these for this show or for whatever you know i i literally do, i don't read anything i don't look into it I just sit down and watch it so just knowing that um Kit mentioned he wanted to watch it and do it for this podcast and knowing that he thought it was fucked up and scared him as a child <laughs> was kind of my entire context for uh this uh for this uh podcast and for for this viewing I found it to be you know fascinating um, in, the, in the, just a visual sense. I mean, um, obviously the direction is is uh, superb. It's very episodic. I mean, it really follows kind of you know, I mean, it's obviously, I mean, it's the rock opera, so it kind of follows the the music. It uh, really allows the images to speak for themselves. It really doesn't comment on the images as much. Um, in a lot of cases, the music kind of almost works at cross-purposes to the image. I found the, you know, kind of not knowing where this is going, I knew that Pinball Wizard was going to show up at some point, and that's kind of all I knew about the film. I found I found, I, and what I found interesting about your perspective, kid, is that the first half is definitely better than the second half. I do think that once this film kind of leads to once he gains his ability to speak again, and once he's kind of uh, becomes the like hang gliding rock star Jesus, you know, salvation <laughs> figure, and then becomes the, the kind of the cult leader, the film gets a lot less interesting. Um, which is interesting because then reading about the the genesis of the film, Pete Townsend wrote, you know, kind of the the album seems to come out of you know Pete Townsend wanting to express this sort of you know philosophy of, of you know, basically, he sees Tommy as this kind of heroic figure, as this kind of like spiritual leader. Whereas I think, you know, watching the film, I kind of get the point of like Tommy's just kind of a dick. You know, <laughs> like you know, he's he's totally full of himself. He's totally you know, he's not nearly as special as he as he you know thinks he is. Just by you know, I you know, we agree his disability and all those sorts of things. But um. You know, I certainly don't think that uh, blinding, dumbing, and deafing yourself and uh, playing pinball is the path to salvation in the way that Tommy's uh, methods would and would imply. So I think the film does kind of let me down in the in the especially the final third. I think it's really interesting up until you know you kind of get to the cult leader stuff. But yeah. that first half is just phenomenal. I mean, the you know, the the kind of abusive stuff. Kit, you you put your finger on the the kind of family abuse and that that side of it. I would put my other emphasis on the kind of medicalization stuff, the uh, the way the specialist treats him, the kind of experiments where they're like plugging things into his eyes, and you know you kind of get this sense of like that this is what people who actually are in these kinds of conditions go through, and it and it is horrifying, it is it is terrible. I mean I know people who you know have uh, autism, for instance, who will describe their childhoods as being just I mean just Horribly abused by a medical establishment that didn't, uh, that wanted them to speak and behave normally more than it wanted them to actually be healthy, and yes, um, this this is um, yeah. that's definitely a big part of this film, even if it is kind of subtextual to a certain degree. I mean, it it doesn't quite put its finger right on that. I did I did enjoy the film, but it did get a little bit tiresome for me in the last third. It was just kind of like, all right, I'm kind of done with this, you know. <laughs> I've still got thirty minutes of it left. Really, really enjoyable, and I really um appreciated getting to see it. So. Thanks for mm. recommending
0: it, kid. I think I pretty much echo Daniel's thoughts on this. I, I feel like the, mm. the last third sort of the film, it, it does kind of lose its way. It, it gets kind of uh, confused. Like I, I can see yeah, what they're going—I can see what they're going for. Okay. I mean, mm. Ken, Ken Russell made a career out of criticizing religion, and mm. and I, I'm I'm pretty sure he probably saw this story as an opportunity to put some of that stuff into into visuals and. I don't think the narrative is quite as strong by the end of it mm. to to really get the point across. Like, yeah, I get it. Okay, he's he he becomes a materialistic mm. messiah and 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 is he's corrupted. I get it, but it it kind of it sort of falls apart. Like the the sort of storylines through the whole thing kind of unravel a little bit, and that's fine. I I don't mind it too much because for me, I'm still pretty satisfied by the time we get to the I'm free. Sequence, yeah, uh, which, yeah. which is a fantastic song, and it's a fantastic sequence, yeah. and I, I really do like that quite a bit. So, some of the horrific stuff, the subject matter is different, but it reminds me kind of uh, thematically and visually, not thematically, but in, in mood, kind of reminds me of like Pink Floyd's The Wall in, in a lot of yeah. ways. Same way yeah. I like. Yeah, and um, I'm, I'm really glad I got excuse to watch this, because I'm a big Ken Russell fan, and this is one of the few films oh, is I haven't watched, so, uh, right. yeah. Um, I, I think this so. would make a nice
2: little counterpoint with uh, George Roy Hill's Slaughterhouse-Five, um, which kind of has yeah. a similar visual component. Um, it's kind of about this, this. Um, they're very different films in a lot of ways, but they kind of mm-hmm. come out of the same... Mm-hmm. One of the things that we've come back to, particularly when we're talking about crime films... Sorry, kid, I'm just talking... No, no, go, go. Because, you know, um, One of the things that we uh, ran into when we were talking about crime films was, you know, this, this sort of, um, once you get to the 70s and this kind of malaise, this kind of failure of the counterculture to really fundamentally change society and Vietnam being this terrible thing that was happening in the culture, mm-hmm. so many of these films you can't interpret kind of out of that time period. And this comes... I mean... The, the the fact that the album was in '69 and then the movies in '75, that's a huge yeah. gulf of culture there, and I Absolutely. think that um, you're seeing it kind of come through Ken Russell's perspective, but. It is something I I do I did kind of have the impulse To sit down and like Start studying I almost pulled out a notebook And started actually Making notes about You know Like I wanted to go Into the lyrics of the songs And then like The new version And see what is the difference You know um, To what degree Is this actually responding To that six year gap um, Because that's such a huge gap But I find I find that I mean the the criticism Of religion The criticism Of the kind of Commercialization of religion We just worship celebrities now I mean it's a really great Like set of images But it feels a little tired even for 75, it feels a little like, mm-hmm. oh, well, then they worship Marilyn Monroe. Like, yeah, congratulations, you've 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 officially, you know... <laughs> yeah. Stranger to Strange Land was written in 61, and they kind of did the same thing, so,
3: True you one. know... <laughs> um, I, I, was, I was just going to say, I think the interesting thing there, though, is that w- w- where this may be a slightly different is, I mean, yes, the, the Marilyn sequence is the Marilyn sequence. I think I was just used to have that song, because I think they needed Clapton being... You know, eyesight to the blind, because it's an amazing standard, and it, it, Marilyn's the obvious choice if you're going to have a female idol that everyone thinks is the is the pedestal. What I think is interesting about the point you made, though, is that ultimately, if you think about it, Tommy becomes self-criticism, because by the end of it, Tommy's the idol, Tommy's Roger Daltrey, Roger is the front man of the Who, so they're talking about their own commercialization, they're talking about their own success, potentially, anyway. Um, so it's sure. almost Andrew. self-criticism. And there's a
2: parallelism between the holiday camp that you see, the kind of regimented holiday camp that you see at the beginning, yes. versus later in the film. You know, I mean that that right. was probably really the one really interesting bit is that, you know, Tommy forms a holiday camp essentially. You know, damn, it's mm-hmm. clever.
3: But the other the other thing about that for me is the fact that the carnival barker, the guy who's getting all the people through the door, is Uncle Ernie, playing the the organ. Like he's become a disciple, and that just to me is absolutely terrifying. You know, the notion that he's become this kind of Pied Piper figure is leading everyone up to the up to the doors of the holiday camp and the tills, of course, where they can buy all their all their merchandise all their
0: crosses. Yeah, yeah. The, the creepy creepy has become ex- accepted into the uh, into the new faith of the modern age. It's like kind of mm. it is kind of scary. And is that has Tommy forgiven
3: him, or does Tommy not know that he was what he was? Because remember, um, he was deaf, dumb, and blind, when that happened, So does Tommy have any memory? I mean, that's really that's ambiguous. That's never resolved. But that's something that I find myself thinking about. I was like, does is this is this a Christ analogy where Tommy has forgiven his sinners? Or he's basically brought Judas into the fold, or is it just like Tommy doesn't know, <laughs> you know? And Uncle Emmy's yeah, just a chance to is riding the wave along with the rest. Of
0: the well, family. yeah, that's the sense I got that the Tommy character—he just once he once he awakens, he mm. just kind of runs with it. He, he's kind of innocent and ignorant of what happened yeah. before. Almost, he's just much more interested on a kind of a selfish level. He, he's much more mm. interested in just getting back to some sort of purity and he doesn't yeah. realize that as he's doing that the people around him are turning him into a materialist kind of god figure and are basically just using him to, to profit right. themselves and, and corrupt around him. So, And I think interestingly, you were talking earlier about the difference between Essentially, the
3: difference between Ken Russell's vision and Pete Townsend's vision. And I think that is a crucial difference. I think what Russell added to the film is exactly what he was saying is that criticism of religion. Because you're right, from Townsend's perspective, Tommy was a spiritual power and I think Townsend's central message of, of Tommy, if you listen to the album and you, you, you listen to a strip of the additional material, the end part of the album is very much more about the notion that through our own suffering we find our own path to salvation, and you can't replicate your suffering or project it onto anyone else. That won't work. Everyone has to walk their own path. They suffer in their own way, and the suffering brings about spiritual enlightenment. Now, we can argue about how much of a good idea that sounds. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's, that's, I think... That's Townsend's vision. I think that's Townsend's uh, thesis, if you like. Uh, whereas Russell has this really race, this strong antipathy towards religion. And if you look at the additional material in Tommy, and a lot of it is in the shots, it's not even in the music, it's the way that the father, uh, the stepfather rather, sorry, Frank, becomes this very cynical exploitative figure, he becomes like uh, Elvis's Elvis' manager, right? He becomes yeah. that kind of a, Parker, a, a yeah. character. Right. He becomes a, a Parker figure. And he's very much like, you know, how are we going to exploit this? How are we going to monetize it? And there's a there's one one of the bits of additional material is a song where he's looking at a map of the world and he's adding He's saying, you know, a Tommy holiday camp on every continent, in every country. You know, what they want ain't cheap, small's the pity, but who am I to keep them from their dreams? With this really cynical smile, you know? And it's like, that's Russell. That's pure Russell. My love is that collision of ideas. Townsend's, you know, very earnest. Because Townsend, and that's the thing about Townsend, it's hard. He is a very earnest artist. He's very earnest about his... Spirituality as incoherent as it is to the rest of us, but he's trying, mm. bless him. And it's fascinating to me how you, you collide that with Russell's much more kind of critical view of of organized religion. And so I actually, I mean, I, I you know everything you said. I don't think I disagreed with any of your criticisms, Daniel, about the last half of last sort of the movie. But those are the reasons I find that really interesting, even though uh, in, in in pure movie. Slash storytelling turn they are I agree not as interesting and the first the first half of the movie is clearly the stronger half but I do think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in that second half actually. Oh there's certainly a lot of
2: interesting stuff going on but i I really wish and and this is where i'm gonna I'm just gonna throw it out to you guys um what do you hmm. feel about the fact that the stepfather like like tommy never confronts anyone about the death of his father
0: mm that goes back to me saying uh how how I felt like in the last half of the film a lot of the kind of the the sort of subplots and stuff just kind of get thrown to the wayside like they just kind of disappear yeah. i i I felt like there should have been some something more there. there. Almost it should have went back maybe to, like uh, you mentioned right at the very beginning, how it was kind of like a Shakespearean thing where mm-hmm. he would maybe avenge his father who has been, you know killed by the guy who replaced him, you know, that kind of old kind of story. It's not hard to see, like, an ending, like, a a final sequence in
2: this film, like, after he climbs the mountain. It's not hard to see, like, a there will be blood, like, bashing his head in with a wine bottle sequence, where he realizes that his father was murdered by his
0: stepfather and goes and just murders him somewhere in the mansion, you know. Yeah, but where it comes to Pete Townsend, am I correct in uh, recalling that he was actually abused as a child? I'm pretty sure he was. I think. I think that was. I think that's one of the sort of central themes in a lot of his work. It's because of abuse he suffered as a child. I think. I
3: think. I think Townsend's position is that he. He's his theory. His own theory about himself is that he has suppressed um, sexual abuse. He doesn't actually. He can't claim that he remembers it. But I've seen a lot of interviews with him where he said that he. He's fairly convinced that, yeah, he suffered some kind of abuse as a child, which he's since repressed and therefore cannot remember, but
0: yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I, I feel like his like where he kind of diverts from Russell here is that he's much more focused on his central vision of trying to work out those sort of past feelings in yeah. Tommy, and yeah. so, you know, Ken Russell has his own ideas, and he's putting those on the screen as well. And so I I feel maybe that's where the kind of narrative kind of breaks down a little bit, where there's it kind of diverges. Yeah. They're they're not necessarily yeah. in conflict with each other, but they do diverge at some point. And there's different emphasis. I agree with that. I think
3: also Townsend, you know, the thing about Townsend is he's very much a spiritual magpie. I mean, the song The Seeker by The Who is very much uh, autobiographical. That's Townsend. He's constantly trying to figure out. He feels that there's more to life than the flesh, but he doesn't know what it is, and he's always trying to figure it out. So... But if you look at his work, and especially if you look at, he did a mini-opera before he did Tommy called uh, A Quick One While He's Away, and the, I'll, I'll run through that very quickly. But the basically, I mean, it's a very short plot, But Basically, it's, it's a woman and her husband goes off to war, and while the husband is at war, she has she gets randy, she has an affair with an engine driver, and then the husband comes back, and the final uh, denouement of the story is rather than go down the Hamlet route of having there will be blood and a vengeance, she forgives him. Uh, He forgives her, sorry. He forgives his his cheating girlfriend, and they get married, and that's the end of the story. Townsend's got a real thing about forgiveness. It's a very important thing for him. And for me, as I say, with the spiritual magpie thing, I think that forgiveness is the element of Christianity that Townsend is most fascinated by, and that's the bit that he plucks out and uses. And therefore, that's why the story of Tommy doesn't end like Hamlet. Because, yeah, Yeah. it could be... Otherwise, it is a Greek tragedy to that point. It's everything you expect. I mean, there's the father and the stepfather marrying the mother, blah, blah, blah. blah. That's that's Hamlet. And it could have ended with a big physical confrontation. But I think the reason it doesn't is because Townsend has this... he, He wants to see forgiveness. He wants to... He wants to see that in his story, and it does in a way that does make Tommy very much more of a Christ or Buddha type figure. That is the kind of higher spiritual path to take, isn't it? That's the one that's yeah. And oh, it's and I'm, it's hard. It's it's not very relatable. It's hard for us to, or I, I mean, speaking personally, I find it hard because I'm always the kind of, no, get him, man, come on, made your life hell. But <laughs> but it's interesting. It's an interesting dramatic choice and uh, half less travelled. So uh, it's it's interesting to see in the film.
2: I'm fine with a redemption arc. I, I, In fact, I think that's the mm. better ending, is that he he does, like, kind of is redeemed through forgiveness. I, I think that's a better choice, but the yeah. film doesn't deal with it. The film never presents it again. It's just like that's all implication as to, you know, kind of what happened. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. Like, so, so the film just kind of presents, oh, this is what happened, and we just kind of presume, oh, well, either he knows and he forgave, or he just doesn't fucking know anything. You know, yeah. And so, so, so the fact that 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 ambiguity, that the fact that that is never resolved, it's kind of maybe, if I have one big bone to pick with the film, it is that element. You know, to where sure. this thing that is that caused, you know, not just the the murder, but then the, as you mm-hmm. said, get the forcing the child not to, you know, oh, you didn't hear anything, you didn't see anything, you need to you uh, know, be quiet about this. The fact that that happened, and then the fact that like it's just kind of never brought up again. That's yeah. the thing that I really have a difficulty with in terms of the thematic weight of the film and the in the third in the you know, kind of the final third. Whereas yeah. I feel like that should have been brought back and in a dramatic sense it, it absolutely I mean, I think if you were writing this as a screenwriter, well, you know, it's Chekhov's gun, right? It comes in the the first yeah, act and you kinda of uh, bring it in, yeah, in the third act.
3: Absolutely. Um, I was, thinking, yeah, I was saying yeah,
2: I, I think there's just this kind of sense of like, well, if you're going by the rock opera, the rock opera just it goes off in its own direction. And where yeah. I would land on that is that Townsend is kind of Townsend needed to kill his darlings. Like despite the fact that yeah. the the messiah figure thing is what he really wanted to make the the album about and kind of what the film becomes about, ultimately it's a side it's a it's a side trip to what really is the emotional arc of the film. And the emotional arc of the film should be about like Tommy's reconciliation with his parents about. What was mm. done to him, at least in terms of like kind of a psychological realism. So I totally appreciate the imagery in the kind of final third. I totally think, mm. but that's kind mm. of another story. That's not the story True. we're kind of presented from the beginning. So it's almost it's almost like a kind of a structural writerly level on which I have like issues with that.
3: Townsend is a deeply indulgent writer. There's no question about that. And he and a naive writer. I mean, like he's a he's he's a musician and a, a, a writer of songs first, and clearly a writer of story not even second, but like fifth or something. Like it's a very long way down this list. And that shows, I think, in that plot. That said though, I again what I like about it is I think there's something very interesting about how his parents get murdered which denies that possibility. I like the fact that his followers rise up and murder his parents. I think that there's something although I don't think it's done particularly well in the film, I think, and interestingly, it's not in the musical at all. It's not in the original yeah. uh, rock opera at all. There's nothing about that. But but I think what makes it interesting in the film, or, or would have made it interesting if they executed it better, is sometimes that's what happens in life. Sometimes you don't get the opportunity to close that circle. People just... They just die. They just drop dead, and you, you know, by whatever circumstances, that that's always a part. And and you know, real life is messy, and sometimes you don't get the resolution that you're after, um, and you don't realise till it's too late. And it's gone. The opportunity's gone. And this is absolutely me projecting into the movie. I, I fully accept that. I'm not pretending this was there.
2: Yeah, we yeah. don't know about reading into movies at all. Certainly when no. <laughs> not. <late. laughs> Some of no, them were trying to defend okay. certain sequences in Eurotrip. We definitely did not read into. No, but no, no, no I,
0: I, I do agree with that as well because when you, when, when you watch movies, as much as you try to stop yourself doing it, you get into a mindset of where you're expecting a certain sort, kind of narrative structure and you're, you're expecting payoffs, you're expecting climaxes. And when a film doesn't deliver that to you, it can be hard to reconcile in your enjoyment of a film like take no country for old men for instance that one totally destroys the yeah. entire structure of what you're expecting of a film and it's yeah. actually really brilliant in the way it does it yeah um, well, i think I no
2: country for old men does it and i agree with that but i think no country for old men does it intentionally it's deliberately dis- misleading you yeah and you know it kind of like the the mm. eventual purpose is you know kind of expecting like oh i want to see like these two really like battle it out and then the fact that that happens off screen and it happens in the in the novel as well it's essentially the same you know, process yeah, yeah. Um, McCarthy is very aware of kind of what he's leading you towards and then he knows he's misdirecting you, whereas I think yeah. um, Townsend just kind of yeah just wasn't interested in that and so he no was,
3: and, and I think you know, I think what ends up happening is a symptom of falling between the two creative stores of Townsend and Russell I think that's exactly what happens is you end up that's why the end is such a muddled mess because fundamentally they actually have competing visions of what the story's about uh, and they clearly both had enough of an oar stuck in the water that it never the, the canoe never goes one direction or another ultimately you're stuck in this kind of, and I think it's a very interesting mess, but I'm, I'm not going to pretend it's not a
0: mess so let's just throw it there uh, for both of you, what, what are your sort of like really favourite sequences in this, I mean we, we've, we all talked about the I'm, I'm free scene, I think we all are in agreement that's pretty that's pretty brilliantly done and the song is incredible for that uh, but uh, what are your what are your other like really uh, favorite ones? Is everyone going to say the pinball wizard scene? I'm I'm kind of thinking maybe.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I I actually I actually really like the acid queen sequence. I think that might be my favorite sequence yeah. in the film because it's yeah. so surreal and I, Tina Turner's brilliant obviously. Yeah. But to, to me, that's the most interesting just because that's fundamentally about this process of finding cures for this kid. That are unconventional. You know, you kind of get the sense, or at least I did, of of like these these parents who have spent 20 years trying to cure this kid going anywhere, even if it's a prostitute is going to give him acid, you know, sort of thing, you know. And then it becomes such a surreal, um, I mean, mind-trippy, I mean, it's almost like a spiritual successor to the ending of 2001 in its its own kind of way. And I found that, I mean, even though it is kind of this thing that sticks out like a sore thumb in the film in terms of its narrative momentum, I found that to be like the the most fascinating, just visually sequenced in the film. Um, and probably mm. the one that I would revisit again first. If you said yeah. which five minutes of this film would you revisit, I'd say, oh yeah, yeah. the acid queen sequence. That's the thing that really kind of blew me away in terms of how far it goes with the surrealism.
3: You know. Yeah. And it's actually it's a question I wanted to ask you guys off the back of that, because one of the heavy bits of symbolism actually throughout the film, but it, it comes back very strongly in the Asiquin is is the, the 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 crucifix and the poppy as an image. And I don't know if that's the same in the US or not. I don't know if you guys have the poppy as an image of the fallen of World War One and Two uh, in the same way. Well, 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 first of all first of all,
2: Lee is not from the US.
0: Wait. Sorry, Lee. I apologize. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, uh, it it is here in Canada, of course. The, the poppy and the in the cross are very very prevalent. Okay. So, yeah, right. we we don't we don't get that at all here. It's it's okay, so that, It's
2: an American flag and a bald eagle, or fuck you. Fine. That's what America. Is. <laughs>
3: yeah. I mean, the reason the reason I mention it is just because uh, that's an image that I grew up with. I mean, I, I don't remember when I didn't know what a poppy was and what it meant. It's it's ingrained in our culture because English, British, British culture is very much... World War Two is basically our, our mythology at this point. That's our core mythology as a nation. You know, the the standing alone as an island, the, the you know, D-Day and the Dunkirk spirit and all of that stuff. That's completely like our cultural myth at this point. That's what we're, we're still living off the back of that. We still that's our self-image as a nation. Well, I
2: think. Well, it's fascinating that in Britain that that period, that World War Two, that the the Blitz mm-hmm. is the kind of cultural origin point, and that's so recent. Yeah. Whereas yeah. you know, Britain has such a long history. Whereas Absolutely. here in the U.S., we go back to the the founding fathers and you know, like sure. you know, seventeen seventy six and seventeen ninety one mm-hmm, and all that. So, so it's it's always fascinating to me that that Britain like seems to like culturally, Britain seems to have been born
3: around nineteen forty four. Well, you know, but the reason, yeah. But the reason for that is because we go back before that, what you have is Imperial Britain and we're all kind of embarrassed about that. We know enough to know that actually you know what I mean? Like we right. know enough about our own history to know that imperialism was actually kinda of sucks for most of the people who were on the point at the end of it. So we can't celebrate that. So we kinda of pretend it didn't happen. But World War Two, we were the good guys, damn it. You know, we were up against oh. the Nazis. Well, well, it's good the baddies. You guys, well, you guys
2: are doing way better because here in the U.S. we still celebrate the uh, Western imperialist period where we were killing all the uh, Native Americans, you know. That's well, still a thing that we celebrate, like, you know. Yeah. There are people well, that think NFS well, Destiny was, like, perfectly fine and good, you know, or, like, <laughs> regrettable <laughs> but necessary because, after all, California is amazing, right? Like, come on.
0: Canada very much has the same sort of feeling as far as World War II goes. I mean, mm. then we were we still had much more uh, uh, well-connected Commonwealth ties to Britain at that yeah. point, And that was kind of considered, like, the moment where Canada became, like, a country to a certain yeah. extent. Like, Canada had a lot, like, sacrificed a lot of people in the war for the cause of Great Britain at that point. So... Yeah. They, it, it's very much also in very very much entwined in our sort of cultural mythology at this point, right? Yeah.
3: Okay. Because
0: anyway, so that was.
2: Go there's on. a visual motif I just wanted to mention. I, I know we're trying to move off of time <laughs> because we've been talking about it for a while, but um, there's a visual motif I wanted to mention, which is the the um, ball bearings after um, yes. you know Anne Margaret discovers that. Uh, um her husband has died in the in the munitions yeah. factory, which is obviously we're talking about World War II, and that's very yeah. you know very on point for that. And then that connects pretty clearly to some of the visual motifs with the pinball stuff, and then when we yeah. get to the end, you've got the giant ball bearings, which are, you know, spray painted silver. Or well, uh, even you know, the even
0: the things too. they uh, put on his eyes when they're when yeah. they're doing the yeah, Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. I mean there, there there's
2: yeah. this there you see this again and again and I I'm not sure exactly what the metaphor is, except that it's like sort of this connection to this simultaneous, mechanical, but very um, materialistic in, in, the, in the kind of like realistic thing, in the sense of like, this is this real things bounding around and you know, kind of human behavior being determined in some sense by yeah, Maybe,
0: maybe it's know, just, maybe it's just simply the bond that actually connects Tommy to the world. You know, yeah, like like
2: yeah. certainly certainly it's a pinball wizard. He he definitely is, you know, the, the way he's interacting in the world, with the world is through the flippers and his fingers and moving these balls around and like having like that being his only connection. So the ball bearings being significant visually at the time of his father's death does sort of work yeah. visually but again I don't think it really goes anywhere I think it, it kind of like it, it's no. sort of there but you know
3: but interestingly I think that it doesn't need to I really think that works on its own on its own merits just as a as a visual theme that keeps coming back because you know uh, you mentioned the, the pinball wizard sequence of course that's uh, sorry, you mentioned the um, Acid Queen sequence. That's The pinballs appear in that. There's a moment when the the, the doors open and there's a skeleton with a snake wrapped around it and the bottom yeah. is full of these ball bearings or, and yeah. or pinballs. It's the same image. I mean, as far as my favourite sequences in the film, I mean, yes, I think the Acid Queen is... I mean, that single entity turned me on to Tina Turner. I didn't really know much about her as a performer, and I've I since gone out and found some of her Motown records and really got into what she was doing as a performer in the in the 60s and, and early 70s. So, uh, for that alone, I'd-, I'd have to say the Acid Queen has is- is got to be up there. I like... Uh, I like the Tommy overture so the, the, the sequence immediately after Tommy is struck left and blind and he's taken to the amusement arcade. That whole sequence it almost serves as opening credit to the movie although it's about 15 minutes in by that point. There's still a sense of it's establishing the kid. The kid by the way is amazing his performance I think. Uh, I think it's hard to underestimate how amazingly tough that must have been. The Christmas sequence where he sat in a van and everyone in the room is is focused on him and circling around him and the camera zooming in on him. So that kid just sit there and stare, yeah. expressionless, into space. It's genuinely creepy, and that's that's a, mm. that's an incredible bit of acting by this very very young child. Clearly, other favorite. I mean, I I love I love the preacher sequence. I love. I mean, Clapton's performance yeah. in that is is amazing. The band's performance is amazing. The fact that the the uh, Eucharist is is uh, is amphetamines and Johnny Walker. Yeah, <laughs> is just, that gives me goosebumps because that's that's. The thing about that is you were talking there about the gap between sixty-nine and seventy-four. That's the mob thing. Bluey's and Johnny Walker were the mob drug of choice. That was what they did. They went out and, and took Bluey's and drank whiskey. And of course, by seventy-four, mod is already disintegrating as an identity. It's already it's it's only three or four years ago away from disintegrating completely into punk. And for those kids who felt immortal at the age of eighteen in their mod identity and they're now in their mid twenties and suddenly it's all fracturing around their ear, to see that Uh, It's almost a eulogy for mod culture, just that scene, the fact that it's become religion, the fact that it's become the Eucharist. I love that. And as you say, I mean, Arthur Brown and that – Yeah, Arthur, Arthur Brown. I love Arthur Brown oh man and he's just off the hook isn't he And that he's, yeah. he's, he's,
0: he's 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 full Arthur Brown he's <laughs> I just kind of wish they'd almost let him like be the devil in this movie I am the god of hellfire
1: <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. and I bring you fire yeah
0: yeah yeah yeah. I mean I I, I could go as favourite sequence I could you could
3: pick almost any five minutes from the first half of the movie and I, I could find merit in it I think Cousin Kevin's brilliant I mean it, it makes me sweat with fear watching Cousin Kevin still to this day yeah, it genuinely uh, makes me a... fire. Can prick that guy is goddamn. What a sequence! What a piece of work! And what a performance! The vocal, the acting, everything in that is just. It's, mean, you know, when he's it's
2: probably the darkest sequence in the film in a, in a, in a lot of ways
3: because well, it, it I, is I, just
2: like this completely vulnerable human being being given yeah. over to the sociopath. I mean, even more so yeah, yeah. than the than the sexual assault later. Absolutely. You know, like like I, I think I think that that's really the stuff that like for me like him submerged in the tub. Is yeah. is like this visual that will stick with me even now, seeing yeah. it 36. You know, like that's something yeah, yeah. That's really yeah, yeah. striking.
3: Mm. I tell you that I think I'd have to go with that sequence, not as my favorite, but as the one with the most impact, because I think it did. I mean, the other one that I remember from that, and I I, will, I don't think it's an image I'll ever forget. And they don't do anything with it, but it's when it cuts to the the toilet seat with the six inch nails sticking out of it.
0: Oh, oh god! Yeah. I, just ring, I just
3: look at that and I'm like, oh, oh my. God, you know? And like I say, they do nothing with it. But I don't think I'll ever forget that visual image. I think that's that's just an image of of elemental terror. Um, There's a
2: performer I want to highlight before we move on, if that's okay. Uh, Can we talk about Anna Margaret and how brilliant she is in this? Oh, Oh, God, yes.
0: fucking stunning in this yeah. too, god damn and it's it's, it's kind of uncomfortable almost because she's supposed to be playing Tommy's mother and she was only maybe, I I think she was like a couple years younger or older than yeah. Robert Daltrey at that point yeah. and, and she was all, in her 30s at this point, so. And even even Oliver Reed was only like a couple years older than Robert Daltrey and, and yeah <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, they, well, they work as like the parents of the young Tommy, but then once he's like an adult yeah. Tommy, they then have to like dress them up slightly to make them look slightly older, so you just have to, I just kind of went with it, I didn't I didn't process that, I mean, you know, it's, it's like particularly I bad. think that
3: was deliberate, I gotta say, I think that was Russell being deliberate, I think Russell wanted an, eat- there is a definite Oedipal thing
0: going on, yes, there's no question. Yes, def- definitely, definitely, well. because when you see no some question. of the scenes that Anne-Margaret shares with the yeah. the grown-up Tommy, it's like, yeah. That's a little uncomfortable, some of the yeah, way she's absolutely. hanging off him and trying to get him yeah. to come out of his spell by you know gyrating and go go dancing in front of him. It's like,
3: yeah, okay <laughs> yeah. something there's something wrong here, no absolutely
2: yeah no she she's amazing in that sequence where um i mean i, I mentioned the splashing sequence, you know but but particularly at the beginning, I was reminded a little bit of the uh, people vs. Larry Flint. Of uh, the kind of okay. sequence where Courtney Love and uh, Rudy Woody Harrelson are kind of uh they devolve into their their drug addiction for you know seven years or whatever, mm-hmm. and um, I kind of get that sense that she's just kind of like walled herself off in this room, and is just completely you know she's she's surrounded by her wealth she has the ability to just kind of fuck herself up, and mm-hmm. is is drawn into this like despondency over like not being able to do anything for her son, but also relying on the fact that her son is. Deaf dumb, and blind, like her son's disability yeah. is what's giving her financial sustenance yeah. at this point, allowing her to live this lifestyle. So, I really thought that was an amazing bit of performance and um, yeah, some astonishing imagery. Um, and you
0: know, can I uh, can I just say uh, I don't know about you two, but every time I see a woman gyrating in uh, chocolate, I I immediately think scat, and it just turns me right off. I just I I can't do oh. it. <laughs> can't do it. The beans, the beans are fine. Those <laughs> so did better, but the chocolate, no.
3: I don't get that, but what I did get is, because I'm actually, I can be quite squeamish, it was the beans combined with the chocolate. Because oh. in my head, oh. my mind just went to like, what does that smell like? And then I was like, okay, oh. I need to stop watching. <laughs> no, like, really, like, can you imagine what that set smelled like? Like, well, oh, well, those yeah. lights...
2: Oh. It kind of comes after the soap, right? Because you first get the, the detergent. And yeah. so it's like, yeah. oh, she's getting... bubbles, And, like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's kind of like... I mean, it's hot. I mean, let's just... I mean, it's it's a yeah, really yeah. kind of hot little moment. And you're like, Anne yeah. margaret and that, like, little wet, you know, dress thing. And, like, and her ass was already basically, you know... You sell the curvature and cleft of the ass regardless. Um, even when it was dry. <laughs> and then you get to the, the bit with the, uh, the, the suds. And you're like, oh, yeah, this is great. And then Ken Russell hits you with baked beans. Yeah. And then hits the, on the top yeah. of that. So I mean he's he's essentially I mean or or in the performance and the direction and the kind of cinematography, you're kind of hit with this thing that's first very beautiful and first very like, you know, very male gazy, yeah. and then it hits you with yeah. this psychological horror in a way.
0: Yeah. That, and, that and there actually, there so. there's a there's an extra sort of layer on that as well as this was sort of a dig at his early commercial career sure. uh, yep. filming filming commercials for products. It it gets increasingly dirtier as the sequence goes on. It's just kind of a dig at, like, I had to do this shit. Early I mean, it, it, well, uh, again, again, something that's, like,
2: completely to the side of the main narrative of the film. Yep, but, yep. One of the – probably, I mean, if you ask me what's the most striking sequence, it's absolutely that sequence. It has nothing to do it's with it.
3: It's an time. incredible sequence. It's, and she's hallucinating. She's on drugs at the time, right? Because yeah, yeah, when the husband yeah. comes in later, the movie's fine. So that's her just tripping out. No, I agree. I think it's an amazing sequence. And I also – it's also a thing at The Who. The, the Who did now called The Who sell Out. And they did fake commercials for products in between the songs, yes. and bite is one of the products. So That's right. I think it probably fed off that as well. I don't know the time scale out, I'm pretty sure that would that that scanned. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it is after that. So yeah, yeah. Mm. So I'll just throw a couple of quick trivia things in here before we get out of here. Um uh, the original choice to play the acid queen was David Bowie, apparently. So oh. that that oh. would have been something, wouldn't it?
4: That that no. would've
0: been amazing. Oh my god. Uh great as Pete, Pete, Peter is, but David. Yeah, I'm like, not yeah.
2: saying he would be. He would have been better, but you know.
0: I think he could have done a good pinball wizard as well. I'm just saying, like Elton yeah. John does a great job, but yeah. um, and uh, Peter Sellers was considered for the part of the Doctor originally. Uh, <laughs> okay. But but I, yeah, I do yeah. I do enjoy watching uh, Jack Nicholson give give oh. uh, Margaret yeah. the uh, naughty eyeballs. You know, just kind of.
2: I got spoiled by a Facebook comment that spoiled me that uh, Jack Nicholson was in this movie, or else I, you know, I could just imagine, I mean, I was watching it blind, and just, like, if I had seen Jack Nicholson not having heard his name in connection with this, I would have been like, what the fuck is this? You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, well,
3: you know what, I was watching it with my wife, she'd never seen it, and I didn't tell her, and she just went, oh my god when he came on you know it's like yeah i mean i'm a I'm, I'm pretty much a straight man but i gotta admit when nicholson's giving the camera the eyeball and this is 75 this is jack nicholson in 75 it's like you are just you know it's not human the guy's like some kind of creature from another planet of sex <laughs> yeah, this, this, uh,
2: this amazing. is right after chinatown i mean this is this is like a year after chinatown so he's he's at yeah. that stage of his career and then he's doing this like bit part in this like rock opera. You know, yeah, it's amazing.
0: Yeah. Apparently George Lucas was offered the chance to direct this originally, but uh went on to do American graffiti instead because that's what he was busy with, so uh, kinda dodged a bullet there really. Can you can you could you think of how shitty this movie would be if George Lucas had done it? No one would be talking about oh. this movie. Nobody would talk about this movie now. Oh well, and if goodness. George Lucas
2: had done this movie he I mean he wouldn't have gotten Star Wars either, most certainly. I mean, you no. know I mean come on. on. What Touch would that have back. done
3: to pop culture history, man?
0: Yeah, that's it's amazing to think about the consequences of what would have happened if he had taken this film. Apparently Ken Russell wanted uh Christopher Lee to be the Doctor character. So uh that that would have been an interesting uh Christopher Lee given the sort of Dracula gaze to Anne Margaret. That would have been interesting. I g I kinda like that good. idea.
2: I I yeah. wanna see that now. I do. I
0: do, yeah. Somebody give us a supercut of
2: that. I wanna yeah.
0: see that. And, uh, of course, all all the music stuff here was uh, basically re-recorded. So, I mean, you've got the actors doing their actual vocals for this. Apparently, Oliver Reed was just terrible and had to do his vocals in little spurts. So it, like, took multiple, multiple takes. Jack Nicholson apparently just knocked them off. Just perfectly, in, in, in very few takes. I, I did appreciate that they did that. That they didn't have like people basically doing their voices for them. They actually had the actual yeah. actors singing their stuff. And Pete Townsend, uh, to his credit, even though I think I still I still consider the Tommy album a, the superior. Uh, music here. He does a really good job of filling out things and rearranging stuff that, to fit the actual visuals and keep the sort of narrative on track for the most part. To his credit, he does a really good job of retooling his opera for the big screen, and I think it ultimately. I mean, as as much as we sort of talk about how the end of it kind of falls apart. Ultimately, it's still really cool to watch, and it kind of works fairly well overall. I think.
2: Agreed. Uh, it's it's. I mean, it's it's a it's a really great. It's a really interesting film at the very least. It's a really interesting mm-hmm. film, and anyone with any kind of interest in anything that we talked about should really go give it a shot and give it a visit. I, I it's it's more of a quibble, like for me, that that it yeah. kind of doesn't do this certain thing, you know, that I kind of wanted it to do. Um, but it's, it's absolutely worth watching. And certainly, like, if you view it as sort of a, a sequence of, like, five-minute images, it's a masterpiece. Yeah. You know, any five minutes yeah. of this film is a masterpiece. The whole yeah. thing, eh, it kind of falls apart a little bit. But any five minutes by itself is
3: brilliant. But also, like, if you want a film to be a mess, you want it to be an interesting mess. And this is, you know, even at its most incoherent, it's, it's never, as you say, you pick any five-minute sequence, there's something fascinating happening on camera in any five minutes like, there's something that will grab your attention and will just draw you in. Just some imagery or some combination of the music and the performance,
0: I think anyway, for me. Yeah, to be and to be fair, this is actually more con- coherent than some of Ken Russell's stuff that came after this. So. <laughs> 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 and, we, we, uh, we've got to
2: cover more Ken Russell films. It's oh well, we, yeah. We're thing, definitely
0: yeah. going to. And uh, I'll just end off saying the budget was five million and it actually Gross thirty four point two million in the box office and probably even more than that. So it was it a was, big hit. It was number one at the box office for like
3: fourteen weeks in nineteen seventy five.
0: This is a monster. That's, hit. I mean deal with that for a second. A film
3: this insane making that kind of money. That's great, isn't it? Well yeah. and
2: that's that that's uh that's psychedelic culture. Like why was two thousand one a space yeah. odyssey a hit? Because people take
3: acid before the
2: final phase. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> I can only oh, yeah. imagine it's sort of that same audience. They're a little bit older, a little bit wiser, but they're, yeah, they're yeah. remembering that. You know. It's the easy
3: rider crowd having one last hurrah, isn't
2: it? <laughs> yeah. that, that's what this—that—that's who made, this film made money off of. So it's yeah. almost like viewing it now. I almost wish – there is this sense – I mean I'm glad we get to watch it, but there is this sense yeah. of like divorcing it from that cultural context and like watching it on daily motion as I did is sort of yeah. missing the point of this film.
0: you know? Sure. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. move on now to our second film parents from 1989
5: coming soon randy quaid mary beth hurt sandy dennis and director bob balaban bring you a fresh look at family life the lemley family is moving up in the world
1: rise and shine
5: but something is eating at young michael lemley You're not scared of your room, are you? Michael, the cellar's dark. Everything's dark at night. His parents think Michael's problem is in his head. (laughs) But Michael knows it's on his plate.
1: What are we
0: eating? Leftovers, honey. Leftovers from what? (laughs) From the refrigerator. We have leftovers every day since we moved here. I'd like
1: to know what they were before they were leftovers.
0: Before that, they were... Leftovers to be? Michael, there's nothing to be right now.
5: Now, there's a new name for terror.
0: Parents. Dead <gasps> tent. Directed by Bob Balaban. Written by... Christopher Hawthorne and it's starring uh, the reclusive Randy Quaid as uh, Nick Goddamn, what's her last name? How do you pronounce that? Laomi Le- 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 I don't know. Something like that, sure. Yeah. Mary Beth Hurt is Lily. Sandy Dennis is Millie Doo, uh, Brian Mordorsky as uh, Michael, London Juno is Sheila, Catherine Gordy as Miss Baxter, Deborah Rush is Miss Zellner, Graham Jarvis as Mr. Zellner, Helen Karskelian as grandmother, and Warren Van Evra as grandfather. And I'll let you go into the uh, synopsis there, Daniel. And I'd just like to apologize for this in advance. (laughs) Alright. It's
2: the mid- 50s, and young Michael has moved with his parents from Massachusetts to some unnamed middle-class suburbia. Michael is a sensitive soul, awkward amongst his peers, and suffers from an overactive imagination. Having vivid dreams like the one in which his bed transforms into a pool of blood. He's also something of a picky eater, at least by his parents' standards, which has to be fairly justified due to the somewhat, shall we say, unknown provenance of the meat served at dinner time. Acclimated to his new school, he becomes fast friends with a classmate named Sheila, who is also new to the school and has her own issues fitting in. When describing something she knows to the class, Sheila tells him how to make a gimlet, implying her mother's alcoholism. In response to the same question, Michael describes how best to skin and cook a cat. Needless to say, their teacher is none too pleased with either answer. (laughs) As the film progresses, it turns out that Sheila's father is Michael's father's boss. Both work in high positions at Toxico, a local chemical plant doing toxicology studies, and seem to be involved in some sort of advanced work on defoliants, which may be used in war down the line. We also learn that Michael's father is taking meat from the fresh cadavers he brought in for testing, and is heavily implied to be bringing it home for the nightly dinner plate. The film really comes to a head as a conflict between Michael and his father, Dad, played by Randy Quaid, seems sympathetic to his son's sensitivity, speaking quietly to the young man in terms that imply that he, too, was once of a kind that disapproved of this kind of social deviance. Nonetheless, the father must force his will onto the child and knows that only if the youngster can learn to behave as others do and fit in with larger society will he possibly be able to survive in the world. Conformity, it seems, is the best cover for monstrosity. In the end, cannibalism only candidate through the film, comes on comes to full-on reality as a kind hippie social worker who comes to the house to sage Michael's fears is brutally murdered by Michael's father, then cooked on the massive outdoor grill and served for dinner. Before he will eat the flesh, however, Michael stabs his father to the chest, wounding him severely and causing him to go into a rage, threatening to kill the child and raise the next one right. Michael's mother stabs her husband in the back, despite having earlier admitted that while she herself took some time to warm to the systematic cannibalism, now she quote-unquote loves it, wounding him to the point at which Michael is able to escape before a massive fireball engulfs the house, a product of a sequence of events a bit too belabored to go into here. Michael ends the film in the care of his grandparents, his nightmare over. Although, judging by the color of the meat on that sandwich they've given him at bedtime, perhaps not so much.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Nice. And again, we'll go to you, Kit. Sir, What are your uh, initial uh, thoughts on this film? Okay.
3: I mean, I I picked this one just because, um, you know, I I looked through the list of movies you guys bought and and listened to a couple of podcasts, and it felt to me like this, it apparently feels to me very much in the kind of, although it's made in 89, it fits into the B-movie tradition in a lot of ways. It feels like a a good B-horror movie in a lot of ways, which, I mean, you know, relatively low budget, small cast, economically made. But I think there's there's quite a lot to recommend it. And the other reason I picked it was because I'd seen it – I hadn't seen it as young as Tommy, but I saw it when I was, I think, 13 or 14 maybe. Certainly still considered myself to be a child and able to identify very strongly the main character in the story with the kid, uh, with Michael. So I I was genuinely – I had very fond memories of it. I was genuinely curious as to whether it was holed up, which is why I thought it would be a good one to pick and talk about. And I watched it literally a couple of days ago. And I was really happy um, because I think it holds up pretty well, actually. I love the 50s setting. I love the fact that the film appears to be at its heart a commentary on the deep creepiness of the nuclear family circa 50s. I think that there's, if you think about the other movies that are set in that period, the, I mean I always think about Back to the Future as a touchstone, because again I saw that as a kid. In In Back to the Future, the 50s are absolutely this idealised place, at least in the first sort of third half of the movie. The 50s are the, the innocent era in which you'll Parents were born and grew up and, and being a teenager was great and everything was fluffy and everything was, you know what I mean, like there's this kind of there's an incredibly exquisite nostalgia which even if you weren't alive during that time, Hollywood makes you feel. And for me parents actually is a really powerful kind of deconstruction of that. Now you could argue of course that Back to the Future doesn't equal of saying yeah the 50s were kind of okay but then there was date rape so obviously it's not perfect and actually it does address the ugliness of the 50s a bit but it's not It's not as on the nose as parents. It's not as dark or as twisted as parents is. And the fact that ultimately the biggest sin that the kid commits is having an overactive imagination is something that, as a kid, who had an overactive imagination, that's always a theme that's going to speak to me very strongly. I think Kway is just absolutely magnificent in this. I think he's genuinely, absolutely terrifying from the very beginning. I, I made some notes as I went through watching it, and the first, like, like the second note I made was Goofy is also creepy right because he is goofy the the parents are goofy the 50s were goofy the cars look weird. the costumes everything the costumes the clothes but you know like but it's also creepy there's something because it feels very artificial it feel everything feels painted on everything feels like a movie lot set with scaffolding behind it you know what i mean um so uh yeah i think i think parents is uh, i think it's. A, i think it's very underrated. I had a look around the internet to see what kind of critical reception it got. And it, it, I think a lot of people fundamentally don't get this film. I think they, they fundamentally miss the point. I think it's a lovely, creepy little piece of cinema. And I was, I was really glad to, to revisit and find that it held up to my childhood memories as being a really creepy piece of cinema.
0: Nice. Uh, Daniel, what are your sort of initial thoughts on this one?
2: I kind of see this as a, sort of a cross between John Waters and Tim Burton. 80s Tim Burton, mm-hmm. but not quite having the punch that, that Kid seems to have. And I totally respect the the kind of like, if this works for you, that's great, especially if you saw it as a kid. I can definitely see how this kind of being this fundamental thing. I think by 89, and I do kind of place this in cultural context, by 89, we're already like several years past Blue Velvet, which I think it supports some of these same <laughs> ideas in a more sophisticated way, at least in terms of the, the kind of uh, the 50s, you know, being this kind of uh, terrible maven of conformity that has this dark heart lying underneath. I think that and I, and I hate to kind of, because I have my issues with Blue Velvet, as anyone listening to this podcast probably knows, um, but I think that where I land on it, at least in terms of like um, setting this in the 50s, I understand where the filmmakers are kind of taking it back to their childhoods, because like, at this point in 2016, we're almost as far away from the making of this film as the makers of this film were from the 50s. So we yeah, have to kind of keep that in mind, that we're coming at it I mean, this film is almost a halfway point between the 50s and now. I think where I land on it is by setting it in the 50s and setting it in that period. It sort of implies that this kind of like uh, conformity and monstrosity was kind of limited to the times of our fathers, as opposed to kind of setting it in the today you would kind of get the sense of like, oh, this is still going on. It makes it safer in this kind of weird way. I mean, I understand that the aesthetics work, and I definitely appreciate the aesthetics. I appreciate this as kind of a straightforward horror movie and as kind of an aesthetic experience. But I, whenever I see this kind of film, I start thinking of it like, what is this really trying to say? What's the kind of political or sociopolitical edge to this? Mm-hmm. And um, that's blunted by setting it in the 50s. It's also blunted by making the um, kind of central metaphor something that is done by this family that is kind of looked down upon by the outside. And I think that it equates deviance with, uh, negativity, despite kind of also being a criticism of conformity, which kind of muddles the the message of the film slightly, which I think I'll get into a little bit more as we kind of move on. Overall, I liked the film overall. Um, I just said overall twice in a sentence there. I've had a couple of glasses of whiskey since we started recording. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I, I did enjoy the film overall. I do think Randy Quaid is phenomenal in this. This might be the single greatest Randy Quaid performance that doesn't include the line "shitter's full." <laughs> um, <laughs> and I and I did like the film I really loved the direction I really loved the kind of the ideas behind it I loved the kind of B-moviness of it as Kit kind of put, puts his finger on it, it, it definitely has this kind of very idiosyncratic uh, individual feel but it didn't quite work for me as a full experience it didn't quite mm-hmm. really connect with me in the way that I wanted it to and um you know, that's not necessarily a disappointment, it's just sort of like, Oh, that's kind of a shame. Like I understand where mm-hmm. it's going, but I wish it kinda of done something different. So that's my that's my overall mm-hmm. impression of the
0: film. Yeah. I really like this film. I'm like Kit in that I hadn't seen it in about twenty years. So uh it was a it was a nice re- revisit for me and I I definitely didn't appreciate it when I first saw it. Like I was just too young. I didn't I I I was I was in and I think this is probably the problem why it, doesn't really have the sort of critical acclaim that it probably should. It came at a time when not only was the slasher boom kind of dead, but just the overall sort of horror boom of the 80s was winding down. And what people expected was not in this film like I think a lot of people kind of expected this to be a dead serious kind of horror movie when it's really not it's 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 much more a very sort of kind of a black comedy more than anything else and really it, it doesn't pick up into like outright horror of any degree until like the very final act really so like when I was a kid I was like oh parents oh they're cannibals they're gonna they're gonna be eating people and stuff I gotta, I gotta watch this then I rented it on VHS and I watched it and I was like uh, no, I don't like it that much, and because it, it, it didn't remind me of the films I was watching at the time. But now that I watch it now, I'm I really appreciated it the second time I'm mm-hmm. watching it. Um, I do really think that it uses its budget very well. Like it is a B movie, but it doesn't at the same time feel necessarily like a B movie. It, it looks very slick to me. Uh, very looks very well produced. Uh, Kit and I were talking on the uh, chat and Facebook before we got on here uh, about sort of the uh, uh, government-produced films that sort of came out both in Canada and the UK of uh, those sort of PSAs of kids, don't do that, don't do that kind of thing. This this sort of has that feel to it to me. Like, it's got sort of the kind of same production value, and I do really like a lot of the stuff it's trying to touch on. Uh, I think you're right, Daniel, it doesn't go as far as it probably... Should and I think maybe that comes back to the limitations of the budget and stuff. Like I, I just think maybe they couldn't quite go as far as they wanted to, and, and with what resources they had. But
2: well, um, it feels like a very personal project. It feels like this you know, kind of yeah. deep of personal experience from a screenwriter and a director, and I mean, the, the, the film that we've covered on this, uh, the word that I keep coming back to is Jallo. It feels very much like Cat in the Brain, which we covered last year. Oh. To me, like it, it feels kind of, I mean, in a very different way, I mean, it's a very different film than that, but it kind of feels like this kind of like self-aware kind of examination of some of these uh, kind of horror tropes and some of these, some okay, of these yeah. ideas. It, it, it strikes me as kind of visually, I mean, just just in terms of like the the knife almost going into the eye kind of feels <laughs> very faulty to me you know, I was definitely on that zombie 2 mode during that sequence, uh, you know, kind of going, are they going to go there? Like, that would be, that would be kind of, you know, I would immediately jump this film up a grade. If, if, if we're going there, you know, that would be really awesome. <laughs> I think, you know, for for me, the difficulty really just comes in terms of, I just wanted this film to kind of go in a slightly different direction. I felt like it was a little bit, I don't want to say tired, but it was a little bit kind of, I've seen this before. You know, and, mm. and and despite the fact that the performances are all amazing, um, yeah. uh, the kid, the kid is is definitely well cast. Um, you know, he doesn't have a ton to do here. He doesn't. He, I don't think that he's quite, you know, to the level of uh, the kid that plays Tommy and uh, Tommy, but um. He definitely is a really interesting uh, performance, and, a, and it really like carries the film well. But I think Randy Quaid is just phenomenal here. Um, yeah. He, I mean, and, and mm-hmm. it, were it not for his performance, I think this film would be forgotten to a much. I mean, to the fact that it's already forgotten, it would be forgotten even more so were it not for Randy mm-hmm. Quaid. And I think it deserves yeah. to be rediscovered just for Randy Quaid because mm-hmm. he was really, really good back in the day, and um, mm-hmm. this really shows how he can be both this kind of like. Fifties, almost a house husband kind of guy. Like, I mean, you know, the idea of a fifties husband cooking for his son is mm-hmm. almost by its nature this subversive yeah. thing that's happening. And you know, he's he's it's a phenomenal performance, and I definitely and I definitely yeah. think this film is worth watching if only for that. Um, yeah. And it is worth watching for more than that. Um, it was just slightly disappointing for me. Like, I was really expecting this to really take off, and I yeah. and it it didn't quite for me. It didn't quite work in the same way. So, um, but that—that's—that's that's me talking too much uh, at the very beginning. So, please continue. <laughs>
0: this definitely does connect to Tommy in the same way, where yeah. it fundamentally speaks to uh, the the child's fear of parents. Like this mm-hmm. is fundamental uh, fear of your parents to some degree, whether it's due to strict res- respect of their authority, or if it's fear that they're going to leave you, fear that they don't love you, fear that they're going to abandon you, or a very real psychological fear that is developed for, in some children's cases where they catch their parents fucking on the floor, you know, like, right. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, I, I I did like that aspect of it and I liked that the film kind of muddles what might actually be going on in here. Um, the question kept popping up in my mind, are his parents really cannibals? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm kind of wondering like, yeah, I think the movie leaves enough off the table that you can kind yeah. of interpret that this might be just a really disturbed kid, or, yeah. again, going back to Tommy, a kid who has been abused in some way by his father, and he's rationalizing this through this cannibal narrative that he's made in his yeah. head. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that rating. I mean, for me, it was interesting,
3: because I picked these two movies... Just because there were movies that I'd seen as a kid and messed up, I hadn't made the connection, the thematic connection in terms of the child abuse metaphor. But for me, parents is is very clearly uh, a metaphor for child abuse, and the cannibalism itself is a metaphor for child abuse. it's, it's forcing a child to. Uh, quote-unquote unnatural form of behavior it's 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 impressing uh, a mode and the fact that it's a secret that cannot be shared i mean that's that's not even subtle is it that's that's yeah. uh, you know as an abuse metaphor that's fairly front and center but you, you hit on something that i think is an incredible strength of which is is the ambiguity of it i mean actually watching it this time with with a kind of storyteller brain on as opposed to a kid where I was just absorbing it as a a piece of fiction. What I love is you're absolutely right. Up until I would say the last 15 minutes, maybe the last 10, it is ambiguous, It's absolutely ambiguous. We know this kid has an incredibly active imagination. There's the whole sequence where he's in the closet watching his mum cooking and then behind him there's the sausage coming down from the shelf to, to throttle him. And it's, it's, it's made explicit in the test of the film that that was his imagination. None of that actually happened. It was just him standing in the closet. So we know his imagination is incredibly active and kind of leans towards the macabre. And you've got the nightmares as well, which also tell us that. So right up until the social worker coming home with him, the last, and that is the last 15 minutes of the movie, the film is walking that tightrope. Now, there's a theory about horror. I first remember reading in, in, in a guy, Philip who wrote about this in, in, in a book called Neo Re- Reaction of Basilisk where he talked about um, one of the ways you can define horror is where you create a situation where either something truly dreadful is happening or the narrator is insane. Right, And either of those things, either of those outcomes is obviously scary, but the, the longer you can stay on that tightrope, the longer you can preserve that ambiguity, the greater the tension and the horror is for the person who's absorbing the fiction. And I think Parents is, is a close to textbook example of that. I think Parents does that incredibly well because right up to the the 15 minutes in the end – because the normal thing with a horror movie like this is it's, it, it normally turns at the hour mark. If it's got this kind of ambiguity into it, it plays the ambiguity right up to about the sixty-minute mark, and that's when it flips. And then the entire final act is it's real, and now you've got to deal with a monster. And that's and there's lots of action and what have you. Parents, it, it plays it right down to the wire, plays it right down to the past ten minutes. That alone, I think, makes it an unusual and therefore interesting piece of cinema.
2: Well, the film's only an hour and twenty minutes long. Yeah. So if you say, like, well, that oh, the last 15 minutes, it, it gives it an extra, like... I mean, I, I think that one thing that I didn't appreciate was the length. Like, I think that it lasts exactly as long as it needs to last. I, I think if yeah. this film had been mm-hmm. ten or 15 minutes longer, it would have been difficult, if not, like... Yep. A, I mean, it, it just would have felt bloated. Um, mm. So I, I did appreciate the length. And I I, I mean, I don't want to uh, damn this film. I don't want to, like, say, like, oh, I hated this film or, or I didn't like sure. it. Um, you know, I, I do appreciate the ambiguity. I guess for me, it was never really all that ambiguous. I never really thought okay. that it was really playing it that way. I thought we were kind of playing it as this sense of menace, you know, all mm. like the that, that. Randy Quaid, as brilliant as performance is, it's not it's not played in a sense of where this could be ambiguous. And you can view it as though we're viewing it through the kid's perspective and all that sort of thing. Mm. But I don't think that the the Balaban as director is is um, kind of directing this in a way that makes it seem like. We're really supposed to question this. I think we're supposed to have this kind of impending dread all the way through. And, in fact, I think that it – I mean, for me, it works better as something that, like, this kid knows is happening or really suspects Mm. is happening but never – but has no ability to to correct, has no ability to do anything about. That's almost more horrific than anything is that, you know, you're – as a child, you're stuck in this situation – you have these monsters that you're beholden to, and you have no uh, resource that will get you out of the situation. That's more horrific to me.
3: And as mm-hmm. an abuse metaphor, that's near perfect because one of the things we were talking about those public information films. One that I shared um, was about stranger danger specifically, and I remember seeing. I mean, the, I, I forwarded the YouTube link, but I watched that as a kid in a classroom at the age of five or six. You know, and and it says right at the beginning, you know your parents and then it shows a policeman you know he's all right but the rest of these people are strangers and they might be okay or might be dangerous right and it's like statistically that's the inverse of the truth statistically if you're going to be abused as a kid it's going to be your parents it's going to be a family it's going to be yeah. someone very very close to you that's what almost always happens and for me like yeah parents as the film parents as a as a metaphor for for child abuse, is I mean, it's it's very strong because it's a what, everything you just described there, Daniel, as being the source of horror. That's that's the horror of being an abused child. You 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 know something's going on. It feels wrong. You have no one you could talk to. No one will believe you.
0: Everyone's telling you it's in your head. That's you know that's what it is. I will say like. Although I don't buy this, this interpretation, I, I, I was partway through, I was almost starting to take this as an interpretation of the father's rejection of the son's sexuality, to a certain degree. Um, because when he's in the, when he's in the uh, pantry uh, closet or whatever with the very phallic meat crawling up his leg, and then there's, yeah. the, other, then there's the other scene where he's hanging out with the uh, girl he befriends, uh, mm-hmm. Sheila. And yep. she's trying to physically play with him, and he's like, "No, don't touch me." Basically, mm-hmm. i i was I was starting to get like vibes, like maybe he was, yep. you know, just starting to maybe come into the realization of his own homosexuality. But it, the movie right. doesn't go really anywhere with it, so like, I was like, I don't really buy that's an interpretation. That's really too valid. But
2: I'm 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 actually right on that. I see that because yeah. he, the, the father is. Um, I mean, obviously, this is something that you know, means more to me than maybe than the two of you, uh, for various reasons. But the father is talking about how he must the son must live his life in a way that conforms to outside values so that people don't question this. Yes. Right?
1: Mm-hmm. That's
2: that's kind of the central thing. It's not it's not like you can be whatever you want to be, but you have to like not let people know who you are. And that yeah. very much fits into kind of a queer metaphor, very much more yes. so. The fact that the thing that's going on in this household is cannibalism then kind of equates, like, queerness with, like, killing and eating people, which is, you know, a difficult metaphor to take, which is part of perhaps my resistance to to that reading of the film. But I think there's absolutely, especially if you see the father saying, like, you and me are alike. He has that line. You and I are alike. You and I kind of have this thing. And if the father is kind of, if you read him as, like, a gay man or a queer man who has decided to kind of, engage with the rest of the culture in this so more socially acceptable way and then saying to his son, like, you're going to eventually come to understand that you have to do this as well. That's a really powerful reading. Mm-hmm. It's just the fact that it's then about cannibalism completely that, invalidates that's,
0: it, you know. That's, that's the thing, like, I, I, I praise the ambiguity and I praise the different mm-hmm. uh, things that you can kind of take from this, but it, it does in the last 15 minutes. It kind of, it really does kind of explicitly drop all of that. Yep. So that, yeah, that's, I, I think that's the biggest failure of the film. And, I mean, still I'd say overall it's still a very interesting and very kind of evocative film in a lot of ways, and I, I like it quite a bit. Do we know if the
2: writer was yeah. vegetarian? Do we know anything <laughs> about if there's any film that would convince me to give up
0: meat-eating, it's this film. Like, this is, this is a very... Know. Some of those cuts look pretty good. I I, yeah, it's, I'm going to say it.
2: It's such a, like, creepy portrait of me. I mean, I know I know quite a few vegetarians in my day-to-day life, and, like, kind of engaging with that topic intellectually has been really interesting for me in terms yeah. of... Um, because I'm just going to say this out loud. I eat meat every day. I'm mm-hmm. very much a, you know, I, I make pulled pork every week. It's what we eat on our day-to-day basis in my house. I'm quite good at making pulled pork. I am, you know, I make delicious meat-based products. Factory farming is an atrocity. And the fact that we don't really know where our meat comes from, we don't kill and eat our own meat for the most part in the Western world is very much a a representation of like, we just kind of buy this kind of sanitized product that just kind of looks like some stuff and then you just turn it into, oh, it's chorizo or it's ground beef or whatever. And you don't think about what Mm -hmm. the animal was. And factory farming is an atrocity that we all Mm -hmm. are, if we eat meat, we are engaged in. absolutely. So, the other half of this, if we're going to view it that way, the fact that this film kind of portrays this family as kind of being unique in terms of like consuming this meat. If this idea was the kid discovers that everyone in the society, that everyone he knows is yeah. eating human meat, and uh, kind of made it explicitly about this, discovering that there's this systemic horror that's happening throughout everyone, uh. that becomes much, much more powerful. So the fact that it is just kind of about this this family, I really like the sexual abuse metaphor because that's really the mm-hmm. best way I can think of to like salvage mm-hmm. the film. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't even see it on that level because I saw it as so explicitly about the meat itself, you know. Sure. And so so I mean the discovery from this kid's perspective is that like everyone in his society, if we viewed it that way, was eating this terrible product that was the you know human beings being cut up and vivisected. That would have been really fascinating. That would have kind of spoken to this like systemic horror. Whereas mm. I think again the film almost pulls back from that and makes it just about this family, you know. Mm. So so it kind of ignores the kind of larger
0: implications
2: and then oh, I, I, the I, really like,
0: I I really like that idea of like his parents moving into An actual cannibal like neighborhood, some suburb in the 1950s where everyone's engaged in that. There's a brilliant movie there somewhere. Which is is also
2: kind of a John Waters film, right? Like you can imagine John Waters having done that, you
0: know, sometime in the mid 80s. Mm They
2: move into a cannibal.
0: You know, they it would own. have been. It would have been starring Iggy Pop and Johnny Depp uh, eating people, <laughs> and, and divine. Divine would have probably been like the 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 main course at some point yeah. <laughs> on the table.
3: But can I go back to what you were saying though? Because there's something that you, you made a point there about if it's, if if the child, if the boy himself is is coded as as vector, which you know I can see what you're saying with that. You know, if you look at the adject- adjectives used to describe him, he's overly imaginative. He's oversensitive. He's a very quiet boy. You know, all of these things are things that could be coded gay. I mean, absolutely, that could be coded as, 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 as homosexual, and I think that's an interesting reading. But I, I think that then if, if, you, if you accept that reading, I think the difference between the child and his dad, and actually this, I think this is really potentially quite powerful, if, if the cannibalism is a metaphor for uh, child abuse, then the difference between his father and the kid is the kid's gay. His dad's a paedophile, and they are different things. And yeah. his father sees it as the same thing. His father sees it as the same thing because his father's got this, what he considers to be the same-sex attraction. But, of course, it's far darker, and it's far less okay, and it's far more horrible. And the the blurred line is all in the, the father's mind, whereas the kid's like, no, I'm not like you. I'm whatever I am or I'm not, I'm not like you. So, I think actually that both those metaphors work. if you take the kid as coded as gay and then you take the, the father as, as, as coded as actually, you know, as a pedophile, as, an, as a child abuser, then I think it holds. I actually think the story works. And then that explains why you've got the problem with the ambiguity with the kid and why the counselor can't make any sense of the kid and they're trying to figure out what's going on with it.
2: And for that matter, the, oh. the mother
3: character who says, you know, yeah. like, you know, I resisted it at first, but
2: then I uh, embraced it, yeah. like, but now I love it. Like, that yeah. is. That is something that you see in the in this intimate partners of people who are child abusers. Yeah, that's is, right. Is sometimes they, they resist it at first and then realize, like, oh, mm-hmm. just, just kind of get into it themselves or yeah. allow it to happen or turn a blind eye to it. Yep. I mean, You can imagine. Mm-hmm. That would also uh, sort of defend the notion of why uh, the Randy Quaid character is doing most of the cooking in the film. Because yeah. like he's the one doing dead. the cooking because
0: she can't cook yeah. herself. She can eat it, right. but she it. Well,
3: there you go. That's pretty. Yeah, yeah. That's
0: pretty dense. <laughs> I wish there was a DVD of this with Bob Balaban explaining what the fuck he meant when he was doing <laughs> this. <film. laughs> because man, I, th- I think we're really digging here. We're really digging. Well, yeah. I would. I would also connect.
2: Um, there's another film which I, I ran across and something that I, I didn't put it on our, on our master list there, Lee, but something that I saw as a kid that. Really reminded this film reminded me of is a film called Little Man Tate, which was a uh, Jodie Foster Great directed film. film about a a brilliant a, ge- a genius kid which, I always sorry I connected to when I was like eleven years old when I saw that for.
0: A variety of reasons. Because you were a brilliant genius at eleven. I was right? I
2: was a genius eleven year old, but I'm a horrifying alcoholic adult, so it's fine,
0: you know. Like it balances out, yeah. It it balances out. yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, but that was another kid who was, uh, you know, overly sensitive, who had you know sort of these same issues. And Bob Balaban is in that film, so I yeah. connected it. You know, he he was uh, the quiz master towards the end, so, um, okay. that that title kind of popped up at me, and I was I was already kind of connecting into that film because I think the. Child actor here, and the child actor in Little Man Tate have a lot of similarities. I mean, you, you can almost see the child. I mean, you know, if you if you take out the cannibalism and you take out all the kind of deeper, and you just look at the performance, this mm. kid is just this kind of. He's an oddball kid. He's this quiet, yeah. socially awkward. He's this weirdo kid. He's got his own interests and you can kind of project onto that whatever you want. Maybe he's gay, maybe he's just kind of weird, maybe he's, you know, kind of going to be a goth kid in a few years. Mm -hmm. But he's trapped in this kind of stultifying 1950s conformity environment. And I think, again, where I kind of connect that to is like, well, he's, if he's being, I mean, okay, let's just be honest. I had uh, issues with, like, conforming as a child. And I had lots of, you know, I, I grew up in 1980s Alabama you know so so Jeez. we'll just leave it at that you know yeah. mm-hmm. and i had i had you know kind of emotionally abusive parents to some degree sorry to to bring the house down on that and i don't want to turn that into something it's not i identified with this kid in a lot of ways yeah. i mean i i really did kind of like yeah no i had a lot of these same feelings i yeah. had a lot yeah. of the same kind of thing of like there are things that my parents are doing that are terrible there are things yeah. that like i see in the world around me that are horrifying and I think for me, where my emotions kind of lie is like re- like restricting it to just this family, and not mm. saying this is something that's more systemic. Yeah, almost forgives it, you know, in a certain yep. way. Um, so so yeah. it's, it's it's almost like the film is strong enough that I want it to be more than it is. I want it to be saying something, whereas mm. I don't think it's it's saying something. Again, if we're talking about like it's about sexual abuse and about pedophilia, that's mm. the best. For you. As far as I'm concerned, because mm-hmm. that is something that's very personal and very, I really yeah. like that reading and I want to revisit it through that reading. But mm-hmm. um, the way I viewed it was much more general, and um, yeah. that's why like having it just to be about the family kind of upset me in a way, or not upset me, but just kind of disappointed
3: me in a way. You know? but- your reading of, of cannibalism as a stand-in for like rampant capitalism, in this case represented by the you know grotesqueries of the of the meat industry, I think that's really cool. I mean, I'm like I want to rewatch it again, thinking about it like that because I think there's something I think there's something there, man. I think that's really good. well. So, when
0: when you look at them as a family, like they've got the big house, they got the big spacious. Like they shoot the car in a way where it looks very yeah. very spacious inside. They're very much like the upper middle class 1950s. Their family. I mean, got, this yep, is
2: this is the guy who has a very pretty high level job yeah, at yep. like Upjohn or you know uh, or um, you know. Uh, Toxico. No, like full disclosure. disclosure. I work as a analytical chemist in a pharmaceutical okay. research
0: lab. So you know. Okay. So you're, but uh, you're, you're not asking to uh, take samples of a hundred grams. I was of liver say. <laughs> No, no, no. I no. No,
2: that's not something so, that, so, that I do.
0: Do you, know. yeah. you say pulled pork? What
2: am i talking about? Yeah, me I mean, I mean, when I say pork, <laughs> I mean long kid, you know. So,
3: yeah.
0: <laughs> but they, they 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 got this nice big house with a solid foundation. They've they've got their larder is just fully stocked. Like there's that scene in the kitchen where the where the mother's uh, pulling the leftovers. Uh, mm-hmm. What were that? What were they before they were leftovers? Oh, they were leftovers to be. Uh, but. But yeah, she's Love pulling those that. out and the son's trying to help with the with the cooking and stuff. It's like, No, you don't dip yeah. them in the stuff before we do this and and she yeah. the entire kitchen is a fucking mess. It's just full of stuff. It's like this is a yeah. rich family, like a very rich yeah. family.
2: And there are yeah, cookbooks and in like a, almost every shot in the yeah. kitchen as well. You see well, like these and, very like yeah. immaculately arranged as well, you
3: know. Yeah, yeah. And the sequence later where the girl comes around and they set off all the appliances, and there's like a million appliances in the kitchen, right? And then she's just traveling. She's just doing a tour of the kitchen and all the buttons she can press and all the electricity she can burn. Um, And throwing eggs, which are a representation of fertility, into all these things.
2: Well,
3: of course. And then you won't get in the freezer with her surrounded by meat, so what's that about? But yeah. to speak to something briefly you were saying earlier, that, just, to, just to kind of back up really, because I, I agree with you, in terms of, of reading Michael as, as gay, because you, you're right, I had I had exactly the same reaction to Michael in that I identified very strongly with Michael as a kid, and as an adult I identified with Michael as a kid, because I too was – I mean, as it happens, not gay, but I too was uh, – very imaginative child and slightly oversensitive and you know I was physically very short and therefore obviously bullied because you know that's how it works you know and the reason and you know you know, talk about your issues with conformity I you know I have hair down at my arsehole and there's a reason for that and it's because I'm not interested in spending time with people for whom a male having hair down to their arsehole is an issue like I don't need those people in my life so right. I grow my hair long because it, it, it reduces the amount of idiots I have to deal with on a day-to-day basis because they'll take (laughs) one look at me and be like this guy's not for me and it's like you're right I'm not so I agree with you that the, whilst you can read the kid as gay, it is actually potentially problematic to do that because if you just take the kid at face value and is what he is and leave his sexuality to, to one side, you're right. That's enough for the kid to feel alienated. That's enough for the kid to feel unusual. That's enough for the kid. And the other thing about him that, that I noticed was that he spends, and his dad has a go at him about it, he spends a lot of time watching. He's a very quiet kid. A lot of the shots are of his eyes. Uh, there's an amazing shot where his dad coming down and you just have the top of his head and you can't see his nose, you just see his eyes sitting in the bottom of the frame I mean the direction I think is incredible throughout the cinematography, it's genuinely like really superb. not it's not flashy, but there's some really superb decisions that are made. Some subtle decisions that are made with a framing. And I, that of the kid looking, he's looking out the closet at his mum cooking in the kitchen. You know, there's a lot of that. And his dad
0: says to him, "You know, you're
3: always watching people." Sport, yeah, you know? that's
0: that's a creepy scene. Is like, and he's like, "That's good because people are always going to be watching you." So <laughs> yeah, you, you gotta. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, yeah. and that idea of people are watching you. I mean, like, I'll. Uh, you know, I apologize for the language here um i was called a faggot as a okay, child yeah. fairly often by my mother at certain times okay you know i shouldn't be talking about this but like fuck it whatever she'll never listen to this i was asked if i was gay many 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 times and i mean mm. today i probably identify as probably queerish, you know. I kind of feel uncomfortable, like, embracing that label, but I'm absolutely in that kind of alternative sexuality kind of side of things. I was definitely... I knew I was different really, really early on. And mm. so, of course, I identify with this kid. Of course, like, this yeah. kid, like, is very much on my wavelength of, like, yeah, you see that things are fucked up in the world yeah. around you.
0: Well, yeah. Um, yes. he He's he's totally a cipher for outsider yeah. Okay, yeah.
2: I mean in in a, way, in a way in a way it's almost like you can see him as like you can see the first like start of this film being like part of an X-Men movie, right? Yeah. Where, like, and you can see him yeah. as like and then he discovers he's a mutant and then goes off and has laser eyes or something. <laughs> but like in reality it's like this is this is this is the the non wish fulfillment version of an X-Men movie where like yeah. the reality is you're just a yeah. weirdo. You're Confronted with this like notion of conformity, and then you have to deal with that as a
3: human being. I mean, dare we play it real life? <laughs> That's yeah, the right, right. Of the
2: <laughs> I mean, we, because because we we look we look to kind of sci-fi, we look to this kind of like metaphor as a way yeah. of freeing ourselves, as, as as a way of freeing ourselves as kind of alternative personalities with yeah. alternative lifestyles for um, understanding the world around us. But at the same time, like, we recognize then we have to go back to our real life. And mm. you know, as, as much as, I mean, I did enjoy, I mean, I think the performance is phenomenal. I think that Balaban yeah. is, is absolutely pushing us towards that. But again, the, equating that with cannibalism just kind of undercuts it completely. So, so it's almost like I have to divorce the, my reading of the film from mm. what's kind of on screen. You know in terms yeah of, I mean in, in terms it, of rescuing,
0: you know yeah again, it comes down to the final fifteen minutes if they if they had left it more ambiguous about mm. the cannibalism, this film would have been much more provocative and interesting to to that degree like it, you really could sink your teeth into it then and really mm-hmm. kind of debate really what the fuck's going on, but even as it sits. I, I still think it's uh way worth looking into. Like uh, I think a lot more people should be watching this film and then just sort of you know taking it in because you, even the even for the aesthetic value I think is yeah. it is yeah. pretty impressive. it yeah.
2: should it should it should have a really substantial DVD release. Like I mean because yeah. yeah, it's kind of forgotten. I I I would like to see this. Something I hope that people discover this episode and then like kind of move on and like actually watch this film and I hope there becomes a conversation around it at least to some degree. Yeah. Really, what I'm saying is I'm overinflating the value of this podcast for the rest of the world. <laughs> <laughs> Forty people oh, will listen I, to this and nobody will care. Uh, uh, to... I
3: think you're right. I couldn't get a UK DVD release. this. I had to buy region one. I bought it as part of a, a three, a six movie box set of like a bargain basement. It's got like Blood Diner and. God knows what else on it, like a oh. film. Earth Girls are Easy is part of the six movie set oh, yeah. So Earth yeah, Girls are yeah, yeah. Easy
2: is a masterpiece and I will fight anyone who hey, says it isn't.
3: No 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 I haven't I haven't I haven't seen it yet. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm glad I picked it but the fact that it doesn't even have a UK DVD release, that because 'cause I'm with you, uh Daniel, what I want is a commentary track. I wanna I want to hear the the writer and or the director sitting down and tell me what the hell they were thinking. Because I'm really <laughs> interested. You know, given all the stuff we've talked about throughout this conversation about the ambiguities in this, in this, you know, in this story, in the characters, and in the what is a cannibalism metaphor for, if it's a metaphor for anything, I really want to hear that. I mean, it's interesting, you know, talking about the last fifteen minutes and um, whether or not it kind of. I mean, obviously, yeah, it, it destroys the ambiguity and therefore it changes the nature of the film. The thing I like though is the, is, the, is the final twist, because for me that's what nails the for me that's what nails the metaphor of it being about child abuse is the fact that the the grandparents leave the sandwich crime because you know what we know about child abuse is not all children who are abused go on to become abusers. that's a fallacy The, the vast majority don't, but almost all abusers were abused. that's also true you know, uh, yeah, no, you ab- know that's ab- absolutely. Absolutely. So I mean, the notion that there's a family line there, and that moment when the it, – I think it's a superb horror movie moment. I really do. The, the final shot of the film, as the camera pans down over the bed, you see the kid, and then you see the sandwich, and then you see the kid see the sandwich. And that's the last shot of the film. It zooms in on his eye, widening. That's – I mean, that is – <laughs> it's really
2: I, I, I kinda want a sequel like following this <laughs> yeah. character like 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 who has become a cannibal, like occasional cannibal in and of itself, but is fighting that impulse and like like kind of uh, like exploring that you know, the, the nature versus nurture, the, the kind of like socialization, yeah. the social construction of how we build our identities sort of thing, you know. Of course, that's going to be incredibly problematic when you connect it to the gay metaphor. <laughs> you yeah, know? Well, this, so, yeah.
0: this kid almost becomes the uh, the crazy cook character in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where yeah. where he, he, he becomes totally insane by his sort of cannibalistic tendencies that have erupted through the family line. But at the yeah. same time, he tries to keep on a veneer of normalcy. And, and and every once in a while, that breaks through. Uh, mm. But uh, we'll do Texas Chainsaw Massacre at some point. Yeah. <laughs> we'll I I'd
2: only years. request when we do Texas Chainsaw Massacre, we do summer school along with it.
0: Uh,
2: <laughs> I because that, that film envelops, you know, in Texas yeah, Chainsaw uh, Massacre
0: for me. God damn it! I don't want to, I don't want to do that on the same podcast as Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> right, so,
2: we'll do it in the next episode. That's fine.
0: That, that, I'm just okay. saying, I'm just
2: saying, we need to have more Carmen <laughs> on this podcast at some point. You know, like. Okay. By the way, this is the third, at least the third film we've discussed that like has cannibalism as a central theme. We've done Ravenous and we've done Motel Hell. And I really like the fact that we've done all of that before we've done a single Tom Cruise movie. I think that's a a fundamental thing about this podcast.
3: um, I believe the internet internet phrase for that is doing it right. I think that's just happening here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think that's doing movie podcasts right. I'm, Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we'll find a worthy Tom Cruise movie at some point.
2: I, I would have much to say about Magnolia if we ever do Magnolia.
3: Just, just for a second, not to bring it back down, but to to go back to that, and this just occurred to me. So uh, I'm thinking aloud here, but if if we if we're following the metaphor of uh, if we're coding the kid as gay and we're coding the parents and the cannibalism thing as being pedophilia, and we're separating those two up, um, I think. You know, one of the interesting things that's saying for me is, especially for a film that was made in the eighties, there's a lot of there's a lot in the popular culture in the eighties. Uh, I don't know if this true in the US actually, but certainly in the UK, one of the reasons that, that our society got away with being as homophobic as it was for as long as it was, was precisely because a lot of people falsely equated homosexuality and paedophilia, especially male gay sex. I mean, lesbianism is kind of a different thing because there's this whole Victorian thing about women well, don't have sex, drugs, so that's a different yeah. Mm. Well, right, well that, yeah, okay. So that's, that, yeah. So there's that too. But but there's this thing about like you know there was there was definitely in the popular culture in the right wing popular culture in the UK in the 80s tabloid press there was a, a, an equating of of male homosexuality with paedophilia. Unquestionably, that line was blurred as often as I could get away with blurring it because it cast gay people in a bad light. It allowed them to continue to reinforce. Homophobic laws uh, like Section Twenty Eight and stuff like that. Now, I I can't speak to what it was like in the U.S., so I don't know how well that scans across. It was
2: it was very much the same in the U.S. Sorry, sorry. I was I was joking yeah, okay. about the lesbianism is hot, but that's the kind of interpretation no, 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 no. that like, yeah. oh well, like girls getting in on with other girls is just like you know, oh yeah, that's that's sure. attractive. Whereas gay men, that's disgusting, and that's totally male gaze and patriarchy. Like, fuck that. Shit. that I'm just gonna. put it. That right
3: no, there. I understand that. All I'd say, that not not to speak against that, but just as additional kind of information, in, in the UK thing, certainly in the Victorian era, which is when homosexuality was, was outlawed in the UK, the reason that female homosexuality was not outlawed in the UK was because Victoria, Queen Victoria, literally thought that women didn't have a sex drive and therefore could not be lesbians. Mm. I'm not kidding. That was absolutely the culture. Was that you know, sex was something women consulted to on a protest because we needed to make sure
2: vibrators were invented as like treatments for sexual hysteria or hysteria, which right. was like women being horny and not being satisfied by their
3: Victorian era yeah. husbands.
2: So right. you know, I mean,
3: women, women were yeah, women were pathologized. Women were institutionalized for having sex drive. Yeah. Right.
2: I mean, I mean, female sexuality was treated as as a pathology, which I'm just restating what you yeah. already said but yeah, like yeah, yeah. absolutely that's like true. the idea that women might desire sexuality that's a terrifying thing within like
0: western <laughs> patriarchal society and that, that 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 was equated with witchcraft i mean yeah. Yeah. Uh, whether it was a female wanted, liked having sex or if she owned property, yeah. she was su- right. suddenly she was a fucking witch. Suspect, absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. yeah. you know, to, talking about the movie in those senses and the notion that uh, again the, the idea of the grandparents being the cannibals, being the, the abusive, and the fact that this kid. So you were talking about a sequel. I was just thinking about the notion of a sequel that actually like really went for those themes. So this kid dealing with the fact that he was. He was gay and having self hatred because he couldn't separate out the gayness from the cannibalism. Slash, Peter, you know what I mean? Like, because they were scrambled because of society's perception of the two things. And a story where the kid tried, tried to find his way out through that. You know, I don't well,
2: know. That's, that's very much the where we land on so much of this stuff in the society is where, you know, our, our notions of masculinity and femininity and sexual desire and gender identity. Mm. Get coded with so many other things. Like I know, and I, and I'm going to, I'm completely on board with transgender individuals expressing their gender identity in whatever the way they choose to. Mm-hmm. But where you kind of run into this in terms of my own social circle, and again, I apologize to anyone listening to this who may, uh, you know, what I have run into in my personal life are people who are transgender who embrace a male identity and then embrace this kind of toxic masculinity along with it or who embrace femininity right. as trans women mm-hmm. who then embrace this kind of like helplessness or whatever along with it you know they and i completely understand that i get it yeah. completely yeah, because yeah. you you want to code as strongly as possible away from your assigned gender at birth and you want to you know but at the same time that becomes its own kind of toxic thing like I know people who are basically, you know, again, apologies, you know, men with hairy tits who mm-hmm. then will engage in so many toxic masculine practices that, yeah. uh, you know, expecting the women in the room to, like, clean the tables and cook the dinners and mm-hmm. that sort of thing as opposed to, like, understanding that these things should then be accepted as, like, we should just treat this as an egalitarian matter. So that's absolutely the case. and uh you know, differentiating. I mean, again, looking at a hypothetical sequel. I hope Bob Bob Balaban comes back and directs this. Honestly, like <laughs> I Bob yeah. Balaban directs this. You know, like uh, connecting a, uh, you know, this kid like saying like I'm gay and I was a child cannibal and like kind of connecting these two and then differentiating between them could be really really powerful. I would really yeah. love to see that. You know, uh, I want to. I want to. I wa- I hope that he calls it children because you know, <laughs> he has no, kids where yeah, he, like, yeah, yeah, is, yeah, yeah. is instructed by his children on, like, how to, uh, add, like, differentiate these things. Like, that's what yeah, I really yeah. hope this film, you know, the sequel would become. But um, now I'm just <laughs> writing... <laughs> hey, kid, you want to co-write a, a script for like You know
3: what I mean? I've got the next three novels worked out, but after that... Okay, how's, okay. how's how's twenty twenty one look for you? Because I something.
2: I will be in my forties, and we will be in the second Trump administration. It'll be great,
3: you know. So great, yeah. it'll, be, okay.
0: it'll be huge. Oh it'll be huge.
2: <laughs> it will be huge. It'll, <laughs> it'll be huge with tiny fingers, you know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think we're a little bit in a, in a correctional facility by that point, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so there, there's there's no trivia on this film. Pleasantly surprised yeah. there actually is any kind of DVD release for this one because this feels like one of the ones that we've kind of found over over a time in the podcast that you know just kind of died in VHS and never oh, showed up oh. anymore. The version
2: I watched for this, the 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 version that I watched that I torrented, and I apologize to everyone <laughs> making this film that I torrented this, was a D-Vex release. Oh, really? Which was so wow. shitty that, like, the dark, like, it's early enough in the DVD age that any, like, um it's actually, like, pixelated and terrible in any, like, scene that has, like, mm-hmm. dark background, you know, any, any kind of low-light mm-hmm. situation. It mm-hmm. actually was pixelated and had, like, all these kinds of, like, very obvious digital composition problems. Yeah yeah. That's how early in the range this thing was released mm-hmm. that I like watched. So um yeah, I, I, I I would I would buy the D V D from this and actually watch it in like good version. Yeah. But like it was very clear, like, oh yeah, this
0: is a very shitty rip, you know. I, I watched mm-hmm. something slightly better on Putlocker, but it wasn't much better. Like still the the color balances were way off. The dark was way too dark. You know. Budget was three million. Box office failure, eight hundred and seventy thousand was the day,
3: so. Yeah, there you go. That's <laughs> why we haven't had a criteria at least on kids kids. Yeah, but Well um, I defend it. I think I think it's better than I think it's better than a lot of uh, successful horror movies I genuinely do. I think it's better than a lot of books.
0: I, 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 I totally well, agree. I mean, I think it, it comes out in an unfortunate period in horror movies as, as far as... Uh, and I mean, it, it gets unfairly yeah. slotted as well as being like a straight-up horror movie, which is not. It, it just comes no, out I'm in right a right. really unfortunate time in, in yeah. where, where movies were in the late 80s. Um, yeah. it, it just didn't... I don't think it really spoke to any audiences. Like, uh, if this movie came out ten years later... Yeah. I, oh, yeah, I think it would have. I think it would have done way better because by that time yeah. you would have had Tim Burton doing stuff, and you I mean, would have even
2: just a couple of years later. If this had come out the year yeah. after
0: Edward Scissorhands, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, uh-huh.
3: right. And also, uh, Daniel, you mentioned it earlier, but Lynch would bed it in much more as a director. I mean, by you know, yeah. Blue Velvet. I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know to what degree Blue Velvet was big at the time, and to what degree it was big in retrospect as a result of Lynch. You know, later blowing up. My memory is. Imperfect, but my memory suggests that Blue Velvet... I mean, it was it was substantial, but it wasn't quite the, the encompassing thing it is now when it came out. I think Blue Velvet has grown in stature as Lynch has grown. You know what I mean?
2: I think that the issue with Lynch is that he was obviously this, like, name director that the intelligent mm-hmm. and commentary at, at mm-hmm. the time would have been commenting right. on. Whereas Balaban is always a character actor who's, like, making this thing... And and yeah. people I don't think knew how to take this. Like I mean, you know, box office yeah. box office is in no sense a marker of quality. Box office no, no, is a marker of what were people in the like six weeks around the release of this film thinking about yeah. like what was the advertising? Yeah. What you know, like, yeah, like yeah, sure. it's all connected into that. And and that's 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 more a marker of the advertising department. It's like I don't yeah. give a shit if this movie made movie, made money or not, you know. Yeah. I mean I do in the sense of like it's an interesting kind of cultural moment. But at the same time, yeah. like the movie is what it is. And yeah. So, yeah. um I, I think, I think you're right. I, I mean, I think that if this did get, like, a Criterion release, I think this yeah. would be something that people would rediscover. You Come know, on, did.
0: Criterion, because that might be enough to get Balaban to fucking say something about it. <laughs> yeah, we want, we want to know, man, what the hell he was thinking. No, really, I, agree.
2: No, really, I, I hope someone at Criterion is listening to this podcast. I hope, he, <laughs> I hope they they're star you. power of the, uh, of
0: the <laughs> writer. Hey, hey Daniel, power, Daniel they're, they're always listening. I mean... Haven't you heard there's gonna be a summer job fucking criterion release down the line. I mean, you know uh, <laughs>
2: <laughs> If they if they get an interview with Chantal, I will
3: buy it. Like,
0: I probably would too, yeah. You're right about the critical response too, because the only
3: critical response I could find was I did find the Roger Ebert review, and Roger Ebert's review was basically this movie doesn't know what it is. It's falling between two stools. It's it's trying to be comedy and horror. And it's neither because it can't make its mind And I think, with the greatest possible respect to Roger Ebert, he completely missed the point.
0: I mean, I really yeah, and, do. I think that's uh, uh, to, be, to be fair. In the 80s, Roger Ebert missed a point on a lot of films. Uh, uh, okay, well, to be quite frank. <laughs>
2: As, as as someone who like I kind of came up in criticism by reading Roger Ebert so I have enormous right. respect for him. That's
0: I a point. think that that's, great, I, think yeah.
2: that that's a, I mean I think that that's sort of a fair criticism of saying this film doesn't mm. know who it's for you know like today we kind of go well it's kind of both horror and black comedy in the say, mm. I can kind of understand like okay rewind in 1989 and kind of like reviewing it as a thing on the big screen. On a mm-hmm. weekly, I'm watching five movies a week kind of you know sure. schedule. Yeah, yeah, going like, yeah, this movie doesn't know who it's for. I get that. But I if, mean, you, if you
0: if you look at his uh, his Siskel and Ebert review, which which I did, uh, I was watching that on YouTube. He goes way into hyperbole as far as his description of this film. Like, this is one of the most disgusting films i ever saw. Like, he was on his, you know, anti-80s horror kick kind of thing. And the ironic thing was that uh, Siskel actually liked this film. Uh. And and Siskel was generally the more kind of timid as far as gore and stuff went as far as these films in the 80s and but he he was the one who was like I actually kind of dig the stuff yeah. the subtext going on in this film so
2: no I'm not trying to defend like his review of this film I I read his review mm-hmm. his okay. text review his sometimes review but I didn't watch the Sicilian bit I don't know I kind of have a sympathy for you know working film critics in the 80s just yeah, kind of go you know like, the, you know, you're, you're on this you're on this working schedule. You don't have the chance yeah, to, yeah. like, watch it three times. Yeah. Yeah. You watch it, you take notes on it, and then you just kind of go on. This is my initial impression. And that's what's really fascinating about movie criticism as a genre is it's almost like yeah, this like, yeah, yeah. instant reaction to stuff, you know? I will yeah. say there's stuff that we've reviewed on this podcast that I then kind of have gone back to and gone, like, Oh, I, I have a you. more nuanced review of it now. You
3: know, mm-hmm. at the time, you know, so No, I've got a huge respect for him, but I think the other thing about it is that I have to remember when I saw it as a kid, I saw it I think I saw this before I saw the shining, for example. Um yeah. I was very young. And I think that so like I think the dream sequences, when he dies turns, would have been far more impressive to me because I hadn't yet seen the shining and the big blood sequences in that that are that, right. you know, in retrospect, Obviously the homage. Obviously that's uh, you know, it's not frankly a steal, right? I mean that, mm-hmm. that bed scene is is incredibly evocative of the of the elevator arriving and the shining yeah. and the blood tide yeah. rolling down the corridor, you know. But as a kid, obviously I saw it in a scramble. So as a kid I saw that and I'd never seen anything like that before. So, it completely blew my mind. And now as an adult I can come through it with a more sophisticated perspective and be like, Oh yeah, okay, so that's a that's an homage. You know, if being generous, that's in the marsh of the shine. So, I mean, well, an ebook yeah, obviously would have had that level of intelligence that I didn't have.
2: Just to, I know we're wrapping up, but just one more sure. little bit. The wine and the glasses is of the same color and consistency. Yes. In the, you know, ah, in the dream sequence, I'm so glad you spotted that. So, so, as so a kid, there, so I was there, there, right on
3: that. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. So, so there is a a sort of. Uh, yeah. you could read this as a criticism of a of a kind of like being overwhelmed by this kind of upper middle class, you know, yes. existence. You know, yeah. so and and the the wine cellar obviously has this deeply interesting and ingrained uh, visual presence in the film, in the sense mm-hmm. like I mean literally the, uh, the dad character dies buried in his yeah. own wine, you know, yeah. which we didn't talk about at all in terms of our discussion, right. but right. but you know because we went off in other directions, but. Like, that's absolutely part of the film. I mean, the the, the consistency and the color of the blood, uh, I mean, means something. Yeah. It doesn't look like blood, it looks like yeah. red
3: water. And if you add that image to the image of the parents when they're having sex and are they bloody lips or is it lipstick, which again is the same color, then you get really interesting. Because it's like, are okay. oh, the parents, you know, it's. Cannibalism vampirism. You know, there's that line there, are they vampirizing each other? I mean it's 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 interesting how that scene as an adult was unambiguously they were having sex, he caught them having sex and it disturbed him. As a kid, that scene read far more ambiguous to me and I, I remember them having bloody mouths.
0: Well yeah, well, is really, well there there are various scenes in the film where where the way Michael interprets it later on Yes. They just they just full on have blood on their faces. That's right. And and that it, and that that is actually part of that sort of thing where where psychologically in reality yeah. kids are traumatized by their parents yep. having sex, where they interpret it as the parents fighting and biting each other. Mm-hmm. That that is actually that's actually a real thing. So that kind of plays on that to a certain degree and. Uh,
2: yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so I won't, I won't uh, again. Sorry to to extend this podcast beyond the the natural length, but um, I did walk in on my parents having sex as, as a child, <laughs> oh, and wow. I didn't understand right. it. I didn't understand it, but I was, I mean, I wasn't horrified. I mean, I guess I don't know. It's a complicated situation because, like, I was, yeah. but I wasn't. And like, But I understood what sex was fairly early, and I think that that's part of the reason why. Like, I kind of walked in, not uh, once, but many times on my parents' <laughs> having sex, and uh, was very comfortable with it as a thing. Like, honestly, the fact that you guys are laughing and the fact that you guys are kind of disgusted Sorry. by the idea, like, I never thought that my parents having sex was, like, this disgusting thing. I thought it was a very natural thing, which but probably tells you right. more than you need to know about me as a person and how I grew up.
0: So, what I what I draw from this is that in '80s Alabama, no one had locks on their doors, inside <laughs> or outside. That's that's basically what. I'm, that's what I'm taking from that. <laughs> I'm I'm uh, going to
2: because this is going out for public consumption. I will refrain from describing the circumstances. Because. Um and I'll That's just leave fair. it at that. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. But, you know, okay. Um, okay. if it was just us talking privately, we could talk to <laughs> more detail. But like I, I did, like I, I just I, I think that I think that the audience will understand me better to know that like I walked in on my parents having sex at least a dozen times between the age of like six and thirteen. You know. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so I never get why that's a horrifying thing. Like, I never get, like, that said, like, oh, my God, I'm disturbed by that. I'm always like, yeah, that's my parents' fucking. Like, it's, it's because fine. you didn't grow up
0: in the <laughs> 1950s. That's probably why.
2: I grew up in 1980s Alabama.
0: Which, yeah, yeah I was okay, say that okay so is I, guess, the, I guess that kind of is the 1950s, isn't it? That yeah. is the 1950s, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, okay, <laughs> I, I take that back then.
2: Um I think that's a personal thing like just for me like I like I never thought it was a thing but that's because I'm the weirdo kid quiet in the corner who was the weirdo you know <laughs> which is why I identify with this kid
0: you know Yeah all right I think we're done with uh, both our films and uh I I I feel like I did a disservice at the beginning I didn't mention that uh, Kid Power is both a podcaster and an author a published author <laughs> So uh, if you'd like to go in detail about where people can find you uh, with both your books and your uh, podcasts, uh, feel free, sir. Okay, thank you. As far
3: as the authoring, the easiest thing to do is to go to, uh, to, to your Amazon .com or .uk and uh, search under books for Kit Power. If you do that, you'll find everything that I have currently published. Um, I've currently got a novel, a novella collection, and short stories that have appeared in various anthologies, but they're all on my Amazon author page. Uh, It's the easiest single place to find me for my written work. I'm also a blogger. I write for the Ginger Nuts of Horror website, so that's www.gingernutsofhorror.com On there, I have a monthly... uh, column called My Life in Horror where I write about uh, movies, music or experiences that disturbed me as a child. It's a monthly uh, monthly publishing schedule for that. Both of the movies we've talked about will be future My Life in Horror columns, so thank you both of you for providing me with ancillary <laughs> material for free. I appreciate that. Um, I will definitely be talking about Tommy and I will definitely be talking about parents on that in the future but I've talked about a lot of other things in the past. Um, the, the music of Wasp and Iron Maiden, uh, the movie of Wes Craven and and various other bits and pieces, but it's all on there. Uh, Ginger's to Horror, backslash my life in horror, if you want to go to the index there. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at Kit Gonzo. Uh, My band is on SoundCloud, Disciples of Gonzo, uh, if you're interested in the the music side. Um, And then for my podcast is uh, watching Robocop Kit Power. Every month I sit down and watch the film Robocop with uh, a friend and we sit and record the conversation we have while we watch the film. Uh Daniel Harper is a, a future guest on that. We've recorded the podcast, I so just haven't released it yet. Again, that's on monthly schedule. Uh that's on Libsyn so just just go on Libsyn and, and search for Watching Robocop or the Watching Robocop Facebook page. Go there and, and you can follow that and you'll 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 get updates as on when that gets released. Uh, the first one's out already, the second one will be releasing sometime this month. So yeah, that's me.
0: Right on, and uh, I will actually recommend that podcast because I listened to the first episode and it was excellent. I actually oh, watched it so. with RoboCop, and I quite enjoyed it. So, uh, oh, excellent! Oh, you're my new favorite human being. Yeah,
3: <laughs> Thank well, you. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. No, no it, it, was, it
0: was a lot of fun, and of course, you had James Murphy on with you, so it was it, yeah. it, it worked out pretty well. Um, and of course, we'll link all this stuff in the show notes so you can find all of Kit's stuff. And uh, Daniel, where can we find you?
2: Well, I'll just say that we have already recorded. I've recorded with Kit for uh, his podcast, and I think that James Murphy was not as good as I am going to be. <laughs> but but really, really, I also think that uh, James Murphy was the better half of that podcast because I have listened to that podcast. So you know, like Kit, like, just ignore oh, okay. Kit, just listen to James Murphy's side. Like, really, okay. don't listen okay. to Kit talk about. Like his favorite movie. Like it's it's ridiculous. Why would you do that? You know (laughs) I say this in complete jest. Um that's an amazing podcast. It's kind of a brilliant podcast. I can't wait to learn when my episode's gonna go up so I get to listen to it and see all the (laughs) shitty things that I had to say on that podcast, which are probably like way over political for anything that anybody cares about for that would want to listen to Rubble Cop. Because I just talk about police violence for like two hours. It's great. Um, so, so I can't wait to hear that. You can find me at alwayspaceman.com uh, where I do a podcast with my wife about Doctor Who. We're also doing Red Dwarf. We're eventually going to get back to doing Firefly. And uh, hopefully the Homicide podcast is going to mm-hmm. happen sometime I just have to like make that happen because I've been a lazy mm. jackass, but that's totally going to happen. And follow me on Twitter at Daniel Lee Harper, and I write a weekly-ish-ish column for Original Press at originalpress dot com. And uh, coming soon, I'm going to write an entire essay about New Atheism and Feminism. So go check that out because I think that's going to be uh, worth listening to or worth watching. Or fuck, I've had too much worth reading worth reading <laughs> yeah. what's the other <laughs> thing this is why I'm not writing it today because I'm completely wasted as of 11.53 uh, in the morning uh, because of recording this podcast so you can't do it they must be thrown on site sober it just doesn't happen
0: so. no. And, uh, yeah, uh, you can find all of our stuff on tmbdos.podbean.com. You can find our YouTube links, our Facebook group, which is the single best way to get in touch with us and uh, ask questions, comments, all that good stuff. Uh, you can find our iTunes link as well. You know, if you feel like it, uh, throw us some uh, five-star reviews and some reviews. That? Uh, I think it's a piece of garbage, and I don't know if it's working properly for me or not. I feel like I'm region-blocked. I feel like they won't let me outside of Canada to see anyone's reviews. But, you know,
1: <laughs>
0: maybe it will help us in some foreign com- country, and I'll, I'll only know about it when we finally get, like, 80,000 people listening to us in <laughs> fucking Afghanistan or something. I don't know. Um I would love to know that
2: 80,000 Afghanis are listening to this (laughs) podcast. No, I would love to know that eighty thousand Afghani's are really concerned with our perfect timing discussion. Like that would be amazing. that would be something.
0: That would be that would be some sort of cultural breakthrough. I think. Something yeah, it would, be, it would be. It would
2: be. The Taliban will be destroyed. if yeah. eighty thousand people listen. Let's talk about perfect timing. Yeah, because it uh, would be like, oh, Popushka, no, Papushka, she's it may be, becomes. The bridge that connects like working <laughs> Afghani people, the working class Afghani's, to the Western world. We all get to collaborate and we all get to like appreciate perfect timing together. You know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it'll, it'll be a beautiful thing. Be really and well. we
2: and we you and I Lee and I that may be our legacy to the world. Like That's honestly, in history books in a thousand years it'll be like there was a really shitty podcast called David Stoodastra on the site. There was one episode. I'm telling
0: you, man, you'll be on the Afghanistan Mount Rushmore, your faces. Yeah. Oh, well, we we could, we could work this into some, like, uh, the man who would be king thing, except for minus, uh, the, uh, minus the terrible ending where they, where one dies and one is disfigured for the rest of his life.
1: Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Um, yeah so uh, thank you very much, Kit. It was definitely a pleasure to have you on, and we'll definitely have you on again in the future. And, oh, thank uh, you, man. Thank Yeah. Uh, and this is going to be an incredibly long episode, but it was incredibly enjoyable, and next week is going to be an uh, intermission episode, courtesy of Daniel, uh, because I'm going to be working like a fucking dog all weekend, so...
2: Uh, I'll, I'll watch something and talk about it for some amount of time and give it to you guys on the internet, so... Yeah,
0: and and then great. after that, it is going to be Johnny Mnemonic, and what was the other one you agreed on again? We're going to do Starship Troopers. Starship uh,
4: Troopers. Uh, Starship
0: Troopers. It's like my second or third favorite movie of all the time.
3: So it's not as good oh. as Robocop, but you know, it's I think it's Verhoeven's second best movie. So I love that film. Anyway, enjoy. Oh. I look forward to hearing you guys talk about it. Seriously, that's going to be great. I look
0: forward to. It. You hey. could come back. Yeah, you could. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not—it's no. not like we—it's not like we put a waiting period between guest visits or anything I like don't, that. I don't—I don't know Johnny Depp at all, but Starship Troopers, I—I I adore that film.
3: Anyway, whatever. We'll talk about it. But I'm looking forward to that, No, not, you know, irrespective of me. I'm looking forward to hearing you guys talk about that.
0: Yeah, right on. Uh, but until then, uh, thank you everyone for listening, and we'll get back to you when we get back to you. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For past episodes, links to the host's other stuff, and links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can also find links to us at iTunes and YouTube, as well as our Facebook group link, which is the best way to get in touch with us. We welcome all comments, questions, movie review suggestions, and criticisms, and we do our best to respond to everyone. You can also find us at Daniel's recently launched Oyspaceman.com, where you can find his sci-fi-themed podcasts about Doctor Who and Red Dwarf. Thank you. Drive through.